and welcome to Ludicrously Specific, an audio podcast distributed via the internet that discusses three feature-length motion pictures that share an unlikely or obscure connection. My name's Doug, and my favorite Christmas movie that I've seen this Christmas season is It's a Wonderful Life. My name is Darren, and my favorite Christmas movie that I've seen this Christmas season, yes, I nailed it, is Violent (laughs) Night. And my name's Steve, and uh, I work in retail, so I didn't really want to watch a lot of Christmas movies this season, but I did watch two of them. Both I've seen before, so once again, it's Anna and the Apocalypse. Oh, no. (laughs) Which I I will note, Darren has loaned me to watch over the Christmas season and is sitting on my... uh, Giant pile of (laughs) Sitting sitting right next to my television because I decided to watch The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari instead. Which was very good, but not Not very Christmassy. Or musically. That's kind of appropriate. Yeah, but there are like kind of people walking around with white faces very slowly (laughs) killing people, so I think that's... It's uh, Christmassy in some... I'm, I'm sure that's Christmassy to somebody, but uh, it doesn't really matter about this because our, we're not really doing a Christmas episode because... We thought well, we were, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we're recording this on December 28th, so this is the not even close to Christmas Christmas special. It's yeah. <laughs> not quite Christmas. And not even special. And it's not even Christmassy because our theme today is three movies that appear on Christmas movie lists that actually have nothing to do with Christmas. And don't worry if you didn't hear that. We will say it again in about two hours when we're ready to talk about it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We'll get back to those movies. <laughs> I will say that um, discovering this is more and more truth about Christmas movies in general, because uh, our original intro was going to be Christmas movies we saw for the first time this year, but Skeet didn't see any Christmas movies for Not the first Christmas time this year. Christmas movies when you're working retail at Christmas. <laughs> yes. Um, and so It's a Wonderful Life was a first-time viewing for me, and, uh, you know, I kind of had... And, and the funny thing is I'd actually seen something called Escape from a Wonderful Life as well, which is a oh. re-edit of the film From the Car Crash Forward with um, Upright Citizens Brigade doing voices over it. And, um, and the idea is you're just trapped in a time loop uh, the whole time. <laughs> oh, wow. And um, that he can't <laughs> escape from. Um and so there's kind of, and that's that's to me that's kind of the reputation of It's a Wonderful Life is like Jimmy Stewart's this guy and he's about to kill himself and this angel comes down and shows him what life would be without him and it's like that is a correct encapsulation of the last forty minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. The first eighty minutes of the film is like these three like star star clusters that are supposed to represent angels ta- having a chat in the sky recapitulating. You know, his George Bailey's entire life, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just hanging out well, for like... I literally 10, have never minutes. seen the movie. I'm sure we did it here. I have literally never Maybe seen the movie. Maybe you were looking in Maybe the corner of your Maybe you house. broke into my house at some point, <laughs> but I'm fairly sure you I, I was convinced I'd seen it, and so I'd even marked it as seen on Letterboxd. I'm like, it's a classic. I'm sure I saw it growing up, blah, 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 you know. Um, I could remember all these bits from it and that that had got seeped into pop culture. Um, you know, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, all this stuff. And 20 minutes, not even 20 minutes in, five minutes in, I'm like, maybe I turned it on late and I missed this stuff. 50 minutes in, I'm like, I've never seen this before. No, no, no. It's, it's one of those yeah, ones where yeah. you, the, there's so many bits you see in other Christmas movies because it just mm. pops up all the time that yes I could quote several scenes from it without having seen the movie if you don't watch it you'll never know about Zuzu's Petals yeah well that was another discovery as well because there's Mm. there was a band in the 90s called Zuzu's Petals and Mm -hmm. I I just assumed it was 
a wildly inappropriate reference, and it turns out it's incredibly wholesome. Oh, yeah, but it has been made wildly inappropriate for people who mishear it. (laughs) But it's what gets me about that film is, and I was discussing it with Doug earlier, is that it has a reputation for being a happy, clappy, slappy, lovely, smiley film, and it's not. It is dark. Right. It is dark as balls, and and spoiler alert, it doesn't even have... It has a happy-ish ending, but it's not fully resolved, and and uh, one of the baddest characters in it gets away with what he did, so... But I, I think... So my reading on it was slightly different in part because I kind of read the counter-reading so much to getting in. It's like, oh, sure. actually, it's really this depressing movie. And um, I I kind of felt like, A, it's a lot of overcoming obstacles, but B, mm. it's just a fuck-you capitalism movie. <laughs> it's just, like, so much about, like, capitalists will fuck you over all the time if you let them, and the only way you can stop them is by banding together. And from that point of view, mm. it's actually a really... Yay, happy, clappy, socialism is good <laughs> True. movie. Just don't think uh, about it for too long. No, no. The, 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 the happiness of like socialism overcoming the evils of capitalism, I mm-hmm. think, is a consistent victory in there. Having said that, the personal relationships, I think, actually shade towards some interesting mm. dark places. Um, I rewatched Vertigo recently because my wife uh, had to watch it for her podcast, uh, cinema and context for those of you who want to complete the Dillman family podcast collection. Yeah, she'll never listen to this, but uh, that's okay. I only listen to hers now and again. So, you know, we, we each have our specific interests. Um, and, you know, that has the reputation of being like the film that showed the world Jimmy Stewart's dark side. And man, It's a Wonderful Life got there way before <laughs> anybody else did. And I know there's some Westerns where he plays bad guys as well. And, you know, but this is that just was like, later on in, in his career. But for somebody who's ostensibly like the happy dad who's just been pushed to his brink, there's some nasty edges to his character all through this film. And, and both he and his partner have... Um, the romantic interests that could have been. And even at the end, when it's the happily ever after, both those romantic interests kind of still on um, the periphery. Ed- edge in the periphery right. in ways that you, that aren't like the really way he like, goes, yeah, no, it's just more that like, kind of, it's almost like the office look to the camera is like, is this happy? I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> you've actually made this much more interesting yeah. movie for me now because yeah. I've seen just the cliched final moments of it over and over again, and it's stuck in my head as something that would feel a bit schmaltzy. So, and maybe I misread it. But that moment where he screams at his kids, locks them in a in the basement, sets oh, fire to it, yeah. and um, strips off all his clothes and dances about that hailing Satan. Never makes it on compilations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe there's a director's. You guy. just watch the wrong compilations. <laughs> I thought that was a little dark. Yeah, that that yeah. does sound dark. But then, you know, I mean, good Christmas movies can be dark because Anne and the Apocalypse is a joyous musical oh, with wonderful. a very downbeat final third. And at the end, it basically kicks you right in the Christmas sack and just goes, <laughs> you're going to cry now. After yeah, okay. giving you these wonderful, upbeat yeah. Christmas, you know, Christmas-themed songs all the way through it. And it also, uh, one thing I love, and it did the Stephen King thing. It went for, things are terrible, let's also give you a human villain who's even worse yes. than the dangers out there. Mm. Yeah. And it's Peter, Peter K. no, P, um, Paul K. 
one of those. He's, it's K is the surname. Uh, don't look at me. You're the, you're but, the um, IMDb. Uh, uh, but he's, <laughs> he's just amazing. Um, yeah. He's sort of slimy, snivelly, weasley, and such a bastard. Mm. And he has some great songs. I, yeah. I've, um, I saw the... Uh, for the first time, I saw the extended version. Right. And it does have some extra songs. It gives the... Uh, uh, the the father a lot more uh, a few songs which I don't yeah, believe he has. I, I think that's the version that's on Shutter at the moment, and that ah. that really has pushed it into the public eye this year because Twitter awesome. was a buzz about Anna and the Apocalypse. Oh, uh, I'm that? so glad. What's Twitter? What's Twitter? Twitter. Twitter. No, it's, it's it's past tense. It's, it's twat. Yeah, it's I know we were supposed to be on Mastodon now. <laughs> I can't figure out Mastodon properly, so I'm on both of them these days. But, <laughs> I, 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 but yeah, the, I, fortunately, I block so many people that I literally only have film Twitter around me, and I very rarely see anything else. <laughs> and I blocked a certain person's name and any mention of them. So thank you for ruining my favourite site, but uh, I don't have to listen to you anymore. But yes. unfortunately, film Twitter around just seemed to really pick up on Anna and the Apocalypse, and okay. so many people were oh, pushing so it out to other people. So. It's just from mm. yeah, when yeah. you get around to it, and you don't have to watch it at Christmas. It no, is much in any old time. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> the movie police won't show up with. <laughs> well, well, it's a, it's more. I mean, the musical. Uh, it, there's very little that really references Christmas, other than their. Uh, the lots of Christmas sweaters and yeah. all that sort of thing. So it's mm. the look of it, but in, in actual fact, a lot of the dialogue doesn't refer no. to Christmas that exactly. much at all. Which is great because most of the Christmas movies coming out these days, and there is a fuck ton, I believe is a scientific mm. term, are so Christmassy that you do want to jump out of a window <laughs> after about 20 minutes. I will admit that last oh, night... No, you didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't, but I came downstairs and my wife was watching... I Believe in Santa on Netflix, which has been roundly criticised as what the fuck are you doing movie uh, for <laughs> oh, since wow. it came out a month or so ago because it's about a 40-plus-year-old man who believes in Santa with religious fervour and then basically tortures his girlfriend who hates Christmas because he has a list of things that you have to do, Christmas traditions, for 30 days before Christmas. Oh, Jesus Christ. And at one well, point... That's, that's <laughs> at one point, though, it literally does have his gay Muslim friend comparing being a persecuted gay Muslim to not believing... to being the person that believes in Santa in adulthood. The movie is... You think it would be a parody. You think I'm describing a parody. It's in the extreme by It's the not a parody. It is done so... Straight face. It sounds like what if QAnon but Santa? It's insanity <laughs> in a bun. Yeah. And funny enough, the guy that wrote it also starred in it and wrote two other Christmas movies that also appeared in the same month. And apparently, he's that's what he's going to be doing from now on. It's oh it's also my. bizarre in that the 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 husband and wife uh, team that actually star in it are actually husband and wife in real life and have no chemistry on screen <laughs> whatsoever. Well, maybe that's something they'll have to address they in may the have new to year. Pretty much the entire internet has convinced <laughs> that it's actually he's a closeted gay man that actually should have married his gay Muslim friend at the end, not, spoiler alert, get engaged to the woman that doesn't believe in Christmas while well, he believes in Christmas. And at the end, it's kind of there's even a voiceover that basically, in effect, sounds very threatening, telling you that you know you can believe in Santa Claus as an adult. It's like oh, the, oh, the, God, the line that's written. Like, that sounds like the Cristiano movies or oh, something. Wow. It's it's it tries to be very upbeat, and but it's not. It's just it's just Christmas Santa propaganda, like 
if Santa was part of ISIS, this is the video. <laughs> well, that segues very nicely into uh, what I mentioned as my favourite new uh, watch or uh, Christmassy watch is Violent Night, which is just it's it is a new Christmas staple, no doubt. Um, David Harbour, correct? David Harbour is Santa. So that's the. Um, I was watching it with a friend who had no idea what the um, what the early twist was, because the film starts and this is no real spoiler, but the the film starts with a guy dressed as Santa in a pub. He is um, drinking till his um, eyes are bleeding, um, gin and which is literally the start of Bad Santa. He works in retail. (laughs) I think that's exactly what they were going for. Was the idea is that he's he's drinking and he's um, hitting on um, waitresses and uh, he's just generally in a bad way. He um, he goes to leave uh, and um, the. The woman, old woman behind the bar, realizes that he's actually gone upstairs rather than out the front door. So she goes to um, goes to um, tell him, "Hey, it's the <laughs> wrong way." And um, he so she goes up. He's not there. She looks up and sees Santa with his uh, reindeer. And he vomits on her from from a from a height, oh, great height. and then that's violent night. So that's the reveal that he is actually Santa, who has lost his um, Santariness. He lost his mojo. Yeah. yeah, well, he doesn't really mm. believe in anyone anymore because everyone's such an asshole, and it's all commercial and blah. And this is really relatable, <laughs> isn't it? Though? And he gets caught in a diehard situation, and it is the most violent film I have seen in a very long time. But it's At least also, until we put on the story of Ricky this afternoon. Yes, exactly. But it's also <laughs> one of the most enjoyable. And it has... And this is something I wanted to bring up, is it? Ha, it it's incredibly gory. It has a lovely light music that plays throughout. So there's... Um, the. Apart from maybe the final fight scene, it's usually fairly upbeat, light, Home Alone mm. style music. <laughs> um, and it, uh, but it hits all the Christmas beats. It it does it works as a Christmas film. It does its mm. come to Jesus moments. It does its all happiness by the end. Spoiler, but it's um, but it hits all the. So if you're looking for a Christmas film, you get all that. But you also get that from Bad Santa that hits all the Christmas moments. And most mm-hmm. of those nasty Christmas films, if they are a Christmas movie and they have a slightly happy ending, then they're going to hit those moments. Yeah. I mean, uh, Anna versus the Apocalypse. Well, it hits a Christmas and a Krampus. Yes, which Krampus is a, a hits those Christmas horror, yeah. but it still hits the, the, the Christmassy beats. You still haven't it. seen Krampus? No, you Krampus need I haven't to. seen Home Alone till this year. So, yeah, you know, I mean, Krampus speaking is, of uh, unspeakably violent, uh, well, Krampus and Violent Night uh, and Bad Santa are probably the the triumvirate. Mm. The, the I, I'm, I'm about to get slapped down favorite. by the internet because I cannot do Home Alone anymore. I've seen it no. once, and once was enough because you know. 
I'm on the side of the web bandits. I'm sorry, Kevin's a dickhead. And he, <laughs> he deserved to, to be ended up stuffed in his own stocking and hidden in the cellar because, I mean, the theory on the internet that says that he actually turned out to be the jigsaw killer from the Saw movies really, really <laughs> resonates. So I... Oh, they do a play on Home Alone. It's um, In Violent Night, the, the kid... Hit, sorry to interrupt you there, Zach, <laughs> but just reminded me, the, the kid in... Um, in the Violent Night movie, she'd just seen Home Alone and thought it was great. She loved it. And then she gets to do her own Home Alone version, which goes way too far and is super gory. But it's a eight year old, a 12 year old kid doing it. Nice. So it really, and that's definitely a parody nice. of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mm. I, so my experience watching Home Alone was. Like, I kind of expected it to just be nonstop traps and gory and, and Macaulay Culkin going, yeah, and all of that. <laughs> and there is all that stuff. And then there's stuff that just feels like a totally different director. Like, there's this guy on the street who's always, uh, there's supposed to be the shovel murderer or something mm-hmm. and lays salt every night. And there's these early scare scenes. And then there's like an eight minute scene. It's really, really long. In a church where they talk about his rela- the, this old guy's relationship with his son that's fractured, and he's come to the church to see his granddaughter with practice because he's not allowed to see his son anymore because they had a falling out, and you know he talks about fear and they talk about mm. and about how he thought when you got old you'd get over being afraid and it turns out you don't get over it but you're never too old to face your fears and all this stuff and I was just like where did this come from you know and there's and and i do like i i get all the comments about the other things that home alone is but i do feel like often the pop culture concept of a film crystallizes in the same way that it did for it's a wonderful life to welcome to 130 minutes of suffering or home alone into like welcome to saw for kids um am i right in thinking the old guy is robert Robert's blossom robert's blossom yeah 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 i don't i didn't i looked him up and i didn't know christine Oh, he's right. the old, oh, the old guy who ranged. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. He's, he's really good, and there's some really <laughs> good performances, and there's some strange kind of like, like the timing around John Candy's whole thing. It's just mm-hmm. kind of like, like we can get John Candy, and he's just like, I'm going to show up and work at my own pace. And I literally forgot John Candy was in the movie. So then they're stuck the at the airport at the end, in Scranton. Yeah. Um, he's got his polka band, yeah. and so Catherine O'Hara makes the final. Um, leg of the journey from Scranton to their home in uh, suburban Chicago in the back of a U-Haul with um, 10 guys in a, a polka band who are spending half their time practicing. Right. Okay, so and, yeah, literally blanked out of my memory. The moment you said it all, I thought I'd had just had a vision of Uncle Buck. I'm like, that's not the right movie. No, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, that's not that. the right no, one. Well, well, it's, it's actually, he's not very high on the cast list. I right. wonder if it's actually one of those where he deliberately was uncredited. For plane, yeah, just for Planes, to, Trains, and Automobiles, which he would have done with John Hughes. Yeah, so. yeah. So there's all those... Although it's a, it's a Chris Columbus movie, John. Uh, yeah, but it's written Malone, by, But yeah, it's yeah. written and produced by yeah. Hughes. But yeah, I mean, there's all these kind of um, weird corners and shapes to these films. And I, and I find it even with films that I've watched a few times, I'll come back to them and I'll be like, oh, this is really different from what I remember well, because it's kind yeah. of gravitated towards the pop culture memory of it rather than the film yeah, in and of itself. Once again, it's a movie you 
all you see in the in the you know when you see clips of it, it's, it's always that last thirty minutes of the movie, and there's yeah, yeah. there's a lot of stuff leading up to that, which you know really I, it just it's an inconsistent movie for me, and I, I know people yeah. love it, and I know people watch it every year, and it's like yeah, that's great, you, know, you like what you like, it's just not me. I just yeah, I find it you know I, I find the first half dull and the second half sadistic, and it's it's not Christmas Eve for me. Well, uh, one I watched. <clears throat> I want to mention it not in our sort of favourite lot, but it's one that I saw, um, which I know will be of interest to you both because it is the original version of Silent Partner. Oh, okay. It's, oh, yeah, um, you mentioned it. Made this, in nineteen sixty nine. It's called Tank Pa Etal, or Think of a Number, and it is a it is a more sort of film noir version of the story so it's it's interesting is it still set it's still set at christmas time it's still set at christmas it's um it's still set at christmas time it still hits a lot of the um the first part of the film is fairly similar and then the second half is very very different no fish tank no fish tank okay no, no. Um, it's it has a, it's a darker, more film noir right. story about someone taking on someone else and maybe not having the smarts to do yeah. it. It's um, so it's it's very different. It's a very different character. It's just, but it's good. It's well worth seeing. Right, that'd be great. Uh, great. We should, I wonder if we can go back and do like. Um, versions of films that we didn't know had remakes that we've only seen the remake. No, of. exactly. I didn't yeah. know that. That's, that's new to me, so... Um, just well, to ben go back... Ben-Hur would be one, wouldn't it? <laughs> Ben-Hur, sorry? Ben-Hur, yeah. Ben-Hur, which ben. was originally in 1923 or something with William Wyler. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, there's that one. Oh, and Cecil then there's B. The, there's, a, there's a few of them, yeah. Mm. Mostly Timur Benabankov or whatever did <laughs> one. Um, just to go back to your Home Alone thing, I do think, though, that, like, the... Um, theme that comes through about it is you know is bringing together family at christmas in whatever form that takes um my wife is active in her church and we went to a christmas eve uh midnight mass which is the first time that church had done one and there were only like 12 people there um i've seen midnight mass there's a whole bunch of vampires oh. and it's just <laughs> entirely i didn't get that far into midnight mass damn it <laughs> yeah. spoilers that's that's the two uh, o'clock one that you gotta go to for that one yeah <laughs> um but uh, also there's just uh, this kind of um, the sense of the ad hoc family. And I think, you know, certainly with Bad Santa has that great kind of like, you know, having Fair found right. these people that, you know, Thurman Merman. And, you know, that's uh, it. Cloris yeah. Leachman's best role ever. Yeah. And so, <laughs> that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> um, and, so, so, and I do think Home Alone has that kind of like, oh, actually, like, you know, these people that I hate are actually... Like, you know, they're my family and we can yeah. make that mm. work. And so I do think, I mean, whether that gives you the feels is a totally separate thing, but I don't think it, I don't think it misses aiming for the note, whether or not it rings for you yeah, as a whole. Exactly. Krampus yeah, follows, uh, it's yeah. uh, not a spoiler, but Krampus follows those lines yeah. too, that it's, uh, he uh, hates his extended family because they're crass and horrible and played by New Zealanders. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and um, but at the end, they all get a, every single one of them gets a moment where they start yeah. to value each mm. other. Yeah, well, I mean, working in retail and specifically liquor retail, I get so many people 
that I meet in the weeks coming up to Christmas that just don't like Christmas because of the stress. And it's normally, when you talk to them, it normally is because we're going to have the in-laws, we've got the, our family coming from mm. here, we've got 45 people, I have to do this, 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 and this. And it's just like, you don't have to approach Christmas as a war zone. Sometimes you <laughs> just have to go, fuck mm. it, this is the man and, amount of family and friends I like, mm-hmm. they're the people that like each other, let's break it up, which, seriously, that's what our family does now. So the aunts right. and uncles are on one Christmas, and I'm with the other side of the family, and we all get on well, we make cocktails, we eat a turkey the size of a small moon, and then we all take a nap, and it's a great day. That's so, the moon. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a turkey. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know, don't stress over Christmas. It's not, you You may have Christmas traditions, but don't be like the guy that I talked about before, where all those Christmas traditions just piss people off around you. Where it's like, we have to do this. <laughs> we must this do that. This is incredibly timely advice. <laughs> <laughs> what day does it get? 28. <laughs> to be fair, I mean, if, if listeners are anything like my... Uh, Uptick, uptick with a podcast, they'll probably be catching up to this about a year from now. Exactly, anyway, you know, you so, know happy, like, happy New Year. <laughs> so before we roll into the um, the meat of the the turkey of the uh, <laughs> <Hey>. affair, um, <laughs> the meat are, of the turkey, yeah, <laughs> the turkey, uh, which are three. Is it the white or the dark meat? Yes, if, you don't, you don't, if you don't go for the leg, you're, you're just you're yeah. insane. <laughs> um, let's talk about some uh, non-Christmas films that you might have been watching in the uh, lead up to. Uh, well, not in the lead up to in the in the lengthy interregnum since our last gathering. Yeah, nice big fancy, fancy. The oh, somebody might have COVID. Oh, we can't get together because <laughs> Skeet is chained to his uh, to cash <laughs> till at work. Exactly. Um, et cetera, et cetera. How many times have we rescheduled this? Multiple times. It's just kind of like we can do it next Thursday. No, we can't. <laughs> can we do it the Thursday after? Yes. Two days later, no. Yeah, <laughs> but eventually we get there. We're not prolific, but yes. we'll, we'll get this done on tape some, at some stage. So, who's been watching what? I'm going to look at Darren for a start. Oh, I'm oh sure I, I, I uh, for the you. for the listener, I am being looked at. Ding. I, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have been watching stuff. It's um, let's let's not deny that. If you're in an improv mode, I can go into something. <laughs> no, no, I um, I'm going to go right into um, one of the one of my absolute favourites that I've seen very recently. The menu is freaking. Mm. Oh, I, now it I've... is, and I love it for everything it isn't in the trailer. Right, because mm. I've seen the it's, trailer. I feel like it has been sold completely wrongly in the trailer. The trailer shows it as a comedic romp, horror type thing, where it could be cannibalism. It seems to mm. hint at that. Um, and it's none of that. It is a deeper, darker story. It certainly has its humorous moments, but I wouldn't call it a flat-out comedy. So the menu is Mark Mylod, who is mm-hmm. heavily involved with Succession. Yes. Um, directing a spec script by two guys whose name I can't recall. Yep. And starring Rafe Fiennes, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Holt, and Hong Chow. Amongst and John cat- Leguizamo yeah, as Stephen Seagal. And Janet McTeer and Dan Anders. It's a star-studded cast. Uh, yeah, it is. And it's great. And, um, and Mark Mylod uh, started off doing um, uh, Bang Bang, It's Reeves and Mortimer. And right. um, lots of sort of British sketch comedy, The Far Show. So, he also has what appear to be some really average, like British uh, features. You know, I was oh, like, yeah, the I was about to say, was I like, think was uh, he directed? Oh yes, he did. Everyone's yeah. got to eat. I mean, seriously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah but he started off in British comedy, so um, and uh, and built a lot of the uh, shooting stars. Some of the really 
well, my favourite stuff. Well, it's very uh, surreal comedy. But yes, great. yeah, yeah. But this is just a... It starts... Uh, yeah, I don't want to give away too much because it's to me it was just a joy of unfolding yeah. and and how deep Ray Fine's character is. And mm. it's there isn't a lot of chance for a lot of depth of most of the people in the restaurant, but they really focus on Ray Fines, they really focus on Anna Taylor Joy. Yeah. Um, and Nicholas Holst, who does a, he's, he's seemed to corner the market in Gormless. Right. It's um, he's. I mean, if you've ever seen The Great, the TV. Yes, yes. Only a couple he, episodes of it, but I really enjoyed the minute. But he's yeah. he's just fantastic. And even in The Favorite, um, which you've probably not seen, he also was that similar type of Gormless but dangerous, which. Uh, he tends to do extremely well. Um, it's it's just um, it's really clever, thoughtful. It it's quite moving in places. It has lots of surprises and an ensemble cast that just. I I can barely be beaten. I yeah. think uh, it's extraordinary, and I was I was a bit wary because um, cannibalism for, is actually one of the few like things that I still get really squirmy about. I mm-hmm. didn't know if it was going to go there, and um, certainly implied it in the in the trailer. Yeah, and my my take on it is it's disturbing, but it's not disgusting. Yes, and that's um, and it is it's a film that Sarah had to well didn't review because they weren't sure if it was for a listener audience, and there are a lot of films coming out and there's like what's the point in telling people to go watch you know, <laughs> you know see, but um it is it is very approachable and it and it's, it's so clever i mean it's casting is brilliant i mean the role was literally written for ray fines and he's perfect in it tell. but when you have the character who's supposed to be the relative normal one that's going into this world of fine dining and is the outsider and doesn't fit in. Mm. And you cast Anya Taylor-Joy, who like normally appears in movies as the elfin like Bjork mm. character from outer space, uh, as that character, mm. you're either making a horrible mistake or you're just nailing something that this person who's so elevated from mm. us is once again at a different level from this whole world of like this mysterious little island that has a restaurant on it that grows its own stuff and has has this journey that you know in this Mm. restaurant with only like six tables in it or something that has a storytelling over seven courses and all this but it's also i mean it is not just a movie about satire but it is also about life and finding meaning and how Mm. you get value out of that and what happens when what you've dedicated your life to doesn't doesn't give back yeah, yeah. but it, it is yeah it's i mean that's but the you first can just laugh at me- it as well it's ah. the first time he mentioned satire and yes the satire plays a large it is a haves and haves not them versus us type of thing and it's yeah see it yeah i will admit the trailer I, is, uh, the trailer's them. it's and as I say, if it's if it's not quite what the movie is, it still sucked me in. Yeah, well, that's the, the thing is the trailer really well is done. what got me there. But yeah. what I loved was that it wasn't the trailer. Which, that which everything is was twisted. All this, it's and I'd love to have a conversation about how trailers are edited to. And mm. but isn't there a new thing there's now a, that trailers a, have to? There's a someone has 
basically, so some judge I think has ruled that you can now sue someone, a sewer or a studio, if they put up a quote deceptive trailer. So this, is, so the background on this, I'm sorry, is that the, you, but you could be sued. No, so it's a very, it's actually a very specific uh, <laughs> clarification that they've done on that because I read about this because oh, it cool. impacts my livelihood yeah. to a degree. Fair. Um, and the issue was around the trailer because he's a court judge for <laughs> yesterday, uh, the Danny Boyle film. And Ana de Armas is featured heavily in the trailer, and her storyline was pretty much cut from the entire film. Oh. I haven't seen yesterday, so I don't really actually know if she isn't in it or is insignificantly in it. And so, uh, and this gets into a really interesting kind of question of like, what if I if I made a trailer for my film Jake and I put a lot of Harrison Ford in it, and then people went and saw it and there was no Harrison Ford. And that that seems a bit of a, yeah, you know, yeah, and so, and, and obviously that, that this yeah. is a different case in which they've shot the material for the film. And in the end, they made a decision in editing to cut it out. So did Harrison um, Ford pass? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Harrison Ford, I mean, as you know, Jake became a multi-million dollar film on the back <laughs> of the Harrison Ford trailer. Uh, but no, so the judge has said, you know, uh, trailers are not, and, and the studio was like, trailers are free speech because they're art and they can include whatever they want. And and I think the studio did themselves a disservice, mm-hmm. and uh, and ultimately the judge said, "I'm allowing this in very narrow, like, you know, not that because you know films can be trailers can be deceptive in terms of tone, in terms of what it tells about story, and it was just about like the substantive, like, is is this actress that's portrayed in the film doing scenes from the movie." actually in the movie and would a reasonable person watching that trailer um expect that to be a part of the movie uh so it's it's relatively narrow and has in a twitter clickbait way um been completely misconstrued but the and and the the decision hasn't been made it's just that the case is allowed to be heard because right. they were trying to get right. the case dismissed. So there's no guarantee that they'll win this case. Um, but it does create a really interesting dilemma because on the one hand, uh, you can, I understand both sides of the argument. It's like there's if you sell somebody something that's not there, that sucks. On the other hand, like you know, trailers are made while the movie's in progress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you get to it's the changed, 11th yeah. hour and it's like actually it's going to be a lot better movie – if we cut Adrian Brody out of it, sorry, I know you wanted to be in the thin red line, but bye. Yeah. And and the studio's like, well, you have to keep that in even though it makes the movie worse because we'll get sued if you yeah. don't. That has a weird that would be chilling a effect, and I don't know how well, just recap that resolves itself. Yeah. Well, but, then, but if the trailer's already been released. It's been released. Yeah. Because oh, often that, trailers yeah. are released months, oh, months that's or true. That is years. I mean, you know, I've, been I've, watching, seen, I've seen... I mean, I collect trailers. I have thousands of trailers. Yeah. And... It's, he lives you know, in a trailer. I live by we're, we're in a trailer <laughs> right full now. of trailers right now. Yeah. Just watching trailers the whole time. I mean, my, my, my best Christmas present here was once again literally sitting on the, the table. Final Blu-ray of the Drive and Delirium Blu-ray. series from Australia. 181 trailers plus another 65 on one, VHS trailers. It is. Yeah. They've run out of trailers after multiple, multiple <laughs> Blu-rays, and I have he all has of them, all the trailers, all of them. And there is some very deceptive trailers because one sometimes, as you say, they've been they cut the trailer. The movie's still in progress. Mm. The things change. Sometimes, yes, they do make that, you know, the studio says, yes, we want this to be an action film, and it's not, so they cut the trailer to look like an action film to get the action film crowd. The 
teaser trailer for Godzilla 1998 made it look like it was going to be good. <laughs> it sucked. <laughs> but the first teaser trailer was unbelievable mm. with a scene that was never in the movie. Mm. It was just basically shot for there. It was, you know, and it, it really got people's attention because it looked great. So, yes, I, I think sometimes you are going to have trailers that don't quite reflect what it is because of studio interference. Yeah. If you're deceptively, as you say, if you cut in you know, someone that wasn't in there or shot like two days with somebody and then cut them out just to put them in the trailer. Yeah, that's, that is definitely deceptive advertising. But the main takeaway here is uh, dine-in at the menu. It's awesome. <laughs> the menu. Yeah. So. It's brilliant uh, and definitely one of a, a real surprise. And I think that's what, what has really stuck with me is I, I went in expecting one thing, that it would be sort of lighter and a bit more fluffy in terms of a horror. Yeah. Uh, and but it's it's deep and it stays nice. with you and it's I'm the performances are fucking fantastic. I want to single out Hong Chao as well because I'm not going to talk about the whale very much because I didn't like it, but she's great in it and she's great in this and she's sort of come out of nowhere. Oh, is she the um, um, she's, she's the Maitre D. Maitre yes. D. Wow, yeah. and, she's um, awesome. Yeah, and she was in Downsizing a few years back, which was not a very well liked movie, but her role in it really stuck out and she's suddenly become this go to person for all these great directors you know she's in the new uh yorgos lanthimos movie oh cool. um and she's in uh the new kelly reichardt movie and you know there's just this whole like um awesome set it just uh, and she can just seemingly do anything like her character in those three movies is so different than any of them you'd think are the real her like she's a, mm. yeah um so my my little actor plug for <laughs> no well she's yeah. great she she is a standout and none of them are like quite award bait performances. Like she won't mm. get it. But if there was a best overall, you know, be- best year, best year, best yeah. year. most valuable player. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's yeah. quite possible Ray Fiennes could be up for something. I mean, his performance yeah. it, it maybe maybe an ing- maybe more a BAFTA than a um, an Oscar year. An I, don't know. Oscar, I, I, yeah. I feel like this has just been a pretty mediocre year for movies in a lot of ways. Mm. So it may like be yeah. some. Something that slides to the top if people just like it, because a lot of the awards bait has just fallen yeah. flat. But it has been a good year for horror, which is where I'll be going. All right, my so, first movie because I think it has been a real banner year for horror. I've actually I've checked back and I've actually watched more movies that were made this year than any year before. Wow. I've watched, well, maybe twenty twenty, only about twenty odd because I I watch so much retro stuff. Right. But there's been some real good stuff coming out, and it's been a good year for me because I've a lot of four or five star ratings. I've noticed on my okay, uh, and in fact. Since we're kind of at the end of the year, I was looking at maybe going, oh, well, maybe I'll do my three top movies of the year. But we've already discussed my top movie of the year because it was Athena. Right. Your recommendation was equal top with Prey. Right. Oh, it, was my, it was my, type, my to... top two movies of the year. I'm so pleased. Athena is Predator, so damn Predator. good. And, oh, uh, yes. Predator, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I still haven't watched Prey. I still haven't seen Athena, so I have yeah. to. That so, has yeah, to be so, my new homework. So, yes, yeah, so a homework from Athena for one person and Prey for the other because they're both phenomenal movies. Prey for the other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Prey for the other. <laughs> <laughs> Prey, Prey to Athena. <laughs> but right up there um, and was uh, Deadstream, which is ah. Shutter Original. Uh, yes. Directed You've by Joseph and Vanessa before. Winter. So this mm. is really a double dip. It is well. Basically, oh, should we allow you to talk about it again? I don't well, I've mentioned it, but I had mentioned it <laughs> while I was the one that I wanted to watch. Yes. Oh, okay. and now I have watched it, oh, and now oh, I recommend. I, we've had a discussion. We'll allow it. Excellent. And I recommend you watch it because it's fucking great. Brilliant. It is. Write it down. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so it does add to watch list. <laughs> Thank so you, Letterbox. It's a very compact movie. There's not a lot of characters in it. 
Um, stars Joseph Winter, who also co-directed along with Vanessa Winter. What's it called? Deadstream. Oh, right. It really stays in the mind. And it's, so. um, there's, it's basically, I mean, there's a, you know, a few people in the actual cast list, but there's really, it's really a three-hander. There's, there's basically Joseph Winter as the, as the main character, Melanie Stone, and then there's one other character, and I'm not going to mention the character relations because what you want in this one is the surprise. It is basically a found footage horror comedy. It's if Evil Dead was shot uh, and live streamed at the same time mm. is what you're looking at here. <laughs> because the the premise right off that, I started watching it and about a minute in, I stopped, took it back to the start, and called my son down and said, "Aiden, you want to see this one? Because <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be a bit violent and maybe a few jump scares, but I think it's going to be fucking funny." And it yeah. was because the, the premise right off the bat is that Joseph Winter plays a disgraced YouTube live streamer, Twitch live streamer, YouTuber, who's gone a little bit too far in his pranks and his live streams and has been kicked off Twitch. And he's done his, his the classic apology video, which is not really an apology. It's just kind of a, hey, I really need my income back, so sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about you know what I did to the, the homeless guy. And so he needs his big comeback. So he decides to live stream a night and a haunted house you know this house that's supposedly haunted and spoiler alert it fucking is um and shit goes down and shit goes down in ways that are both beautiful realized practical effects some nice jump scares and a lot of laughs all the way through they they went to town on this it's not a big budget movie but afterwards i discovered that there was actually a website the the fake streaming site that they use they actually created it and the right. page and it's still got the cameras up all the cameras he sets up during the the film are actually on there and you can click on them and watch streams coming from them and they've got wow. little you know occasionally if you click the right camera you get a, a nice little jump scare jumping out at you on the website right. which is just a nice so awesome. it's just like eight or ten hours of footage that they've just looping on looping well, it's, it's literally not even that I mean it's probably only sort of 30 seconds oh, right, okay. but it's it's just this great little website sounds like on a there. crowd picture it sounds is, like it, it would be a great one to watch I was, with a I was going to watch it with my son because we were both yeah. having a great time yeah and it's just the the, the some of the the, the very Sam Raimi-esque <laughs> kind of shots the and just the the imagination that goes into it. I mean, at one stage, during the as he attempts to escape, he's running out of cameras and he's running out of things to put them on. He literally straps a camera onto a Slim Jim, <laughs> and so that is on the website as Slim Jim Cam. Uh, and well, just I, I don't want to go deep into it because it's, fair enough. It's the kind of one you want to experience the ride. It is. It's very much like a little roller coaster ride of it. Awesome. And I mean, right off the bat, this this character is. The main character is the most obnoxious guy. If I ran across his YouTube channel, I would be like, well, we're not watching that. Yeah. But because of this one, you want to see shit go down to him mm. and see... And by the end of it, you're actually kind of on the side. You, you, he does kind of turn you over. But the real capper is, of course, he's live streaming. So on the side of it, every so often he'll bring up his live stream and the comments are coming up. <laughs> and they are the perfect live stream comments. From right. the first one that comes up just going, fake... To ones later on going, you know, I hope he makes it out right under the other one going, die, you motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And Have you seen Spree? Spree. I don't think I've seen Spree. Oh, that's so a that played from... a Terrify a couple of years ago. Right. And uh, it's about a guy who has rigged his car with 
a bunch of things and he's live streaming and he's a uh, Uber driver. He's from and Stranger he, Things, isn't he? Ah, uh, could be. Yeah. Uh, that, that's not the part of my brain that works. <laughs> uh, and he, um, and so he's going on a killing spree to get viewers. Um, but he can't get any viewers to spy. <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> uh, and um, and there's a whole like um, second screen quality to the whole thing with comments, comments rolling in and, and rolling stuff. In, yeah, yeah, it's um, and it's uh, having you know you know my son watches Twitch and I sometimes watch along with him and stuff. And yeah, the just the 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 near perfect tone of those comments is just the moment they comes up, your your attention just diverts the set to the side of the screen to see what people are saying. Right. So it's it's one you might have to watch more than once. To get all the gags because they stuff this thing full of oh, gags. That's awesome. Very much reminds me the um, the uh, use your words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, forget that. It doesn't remind me because it's gone. The Daniel Radcliffe movie where he's got um, uh, hands, hands where he's got guns Horn. attached to his hands. Guns oh, akimbo. Uh, guns, guns akimbo, which has got that same thing with the live streamers. Uh, yes, are just the biggest bastards in the movie. And, Absolutely. And you can you read that one there. I still remember Guns Akimbo. Where he's he's on the street and somebody's putting up there. My dad lives next door. <laughs> Before we jump to Doug, I just want to roll back just a little. I think we. Um, I just wanted to mention that uh, John Leguizamo is the villain in Violent Night, and he gives an awesome performance as the Steven Seagal type uh, um, actor person in uh, the menu. So he's having a real banner year. I just wanted nice. to bring that up. So if somebody else has got a movie they watch, don't want to be a pest. We can get a movie uh, specific. But I thought we needed to. <laughs> Hong Chao, uh, John Luguziamo uh, <laughs> joints, joints exactly. Um, so and now Doug. Yeah, thanks. Um, I appreciate being invited. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so that that also um, segues into Terrify, which has happened since the last time we recorded, which mm-hmm. uh, and also which I cut the trailer for. Hence the, uh, uh, we could have been a segue there as well. But mm-hmm. um, one of the, um, there were definitely a few films about uh, filmmaking. The most influencer culture one was uh, Fall, which I don't know if you've seen, but is the very mm-hmm. um, elemental thing of uh, two girls get trapped up a tower and they can't get down. And um, there's a lot to dislike about the movie, but there's also a lot that's just so practical and basic and actually the you know a lot of it was done very practically as well admittedly from not as high of a height mm. as you see in the film and presumably with some green screened out um safety features but even still <laughs> yeah. you know just there's um there's definitely a lot of uh practical shooting in there and also just the sheer mechanic like the the leading up to it you know what's going to happen in broad strokes especially mm. if you've seen the trailer because the trailer just is, fat, is the first 45 minutes on fast forward. But it is just this kind of um, lovely sort of final destination tension of what exactly is going to mm. go wrong when. Um, it's a strange sense of claustrophobia for something yeah, that is yeah. so it's, it's out in the about. open. It feels so. It's the sort inverse of, of the descent, but it would still make me have a mild panic attack. Was I? Hate oh gosh, heights. yes. I hate yeah. heights, and I'm, not very, and I'm not very good with confined spaces. Yeah. So, watch it. If I if I want to see if, if I did see the fall, I would really want to want to see that in the cinema, where you know you are basically 
trapped in that dark room. Yeah. Well, Not that... in a brightly lit, you know, place where you can pause it and go make a cup of coffee. Yeah, I remember when I saw the trailer, I said to myself, well, that's one film I'm not fucking going to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I bought the, the the travel pass to Terrify, so you end up having to see pretty much all of it. <laughs> yeah, no, Steve Austin is... Um, also a heights fo- fear of heights guy, but he's like, Man, that's why I want to see it on the big screen. And so he came, he came out for it. Incidentally, Steve uh, streams on Twitch on the Stone Cold TV. So with the occasional um, five hours of um, random weird detritus <laughs> yeah. and obscure films that, so uh, anyone who lives on Twitch and uh, likes that sort of thing should get in that. Yeah. I popped in the other night and was watching a little bit of a fifties um, woman in prison flick, which had the most coy shower scene I've ever seen. If you're into ankles, <laughs> Chef's kiss, but you know, if it had been twenty years later, Steve, it would have been, uh, yeah. I, I'm just going to step away. <laughs> I said, you're, I, don't mind me. I've said too much um, <laughs> again. Um, <laughs> so um, there was also a film called A Life in the Farm, which was super great. Which I'm yes, just going to mention indeed. in passing a documentary about a um, gentleman who spent many years making his own documentaries on his farm. Um, the film I want to focus on. So in terms of best of the year, I had four, four and a half star films uh athena which we've discussed at Phenomenal. length yep. um decision to leave the new channel oh park. yes uh, um, i um which i vouch for that i won't go any more than that other than it's shanwick park it's great um it's surprisingly restrained by chanwick park standards it's um it's not necessarily any less actually um disturbing but what you see on screen is much less disturbing no no live octopus munching no uh, and none of that stuff yeah yeah but and i think it's gotten some slagged off a bit for that um the fablemans which i'm i'm kind of i had such a personal reaction to that part of me thinks it might actually be a not very good film but that is just so resonant in terms of a coming of age story that I really loved it. Um, but I don't, I, for various reasons, I don't really want to talk about it at all. What I want to talk about is something in the dirt, which was the highlight of terrify, mm-hmm. um, and is up there for, uh, my best film of the year and is definitely the best film that I've seen that was made as a response to COVID. Um, so, uh, the filmmakers, uh, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, uh, had a series of films, Resolution, uh, Spring, The Endless, and then most recently at Terrify, they had Synchronic, which is a big step up in terms of getting name actors. For me, it was also kind of a big step back, and I felt like it kind of, the actual, all the requirements of doing that sort of thing took away from the homespun charm, because Resolution and Endless, they both star in and are these really, like, kind of micro-budget macrocosmic ideas like resolution is about these two guys trapped in a cabin where weird stuff starts happening that turns out to be in the universe of the endless where there's all these different time loops going on and then spring which i don't think either of them have much of a big role in but is basically what if before sunrise except she's some kind of weird Lovecraftian night creature that transforms at night. Mm. Uh, I played at the film festival here. It's yeah, kind of, yeah. It's a very good film. Yeah. I mean, they're all good. I, I'm, I'm quite, uh, quite a fan of Synchronic as well. I, I really just bought into the whole thing. Yeah, I might revisit it because I, I had such an expectation from their other films. And The mm. Endless is, may still be my favorite, but Something in the Dirt is way up there because it is about two guys living in an apartment complex that don't really know each other, get to know each other, 
um, over the course of discovering that something weird and supernatural seems to be happening in one of their apartments. And one of them is has a sketchy, uncertain past. The other's a bored and frustrated wedding photographer. And so they decide that they're going to be uh, make these YouTube videos and chronicle this amazing thing, and they're going to discover proof of whatever's going on there when this ashtray floats in the air. <laughs> and and so it's it's these homespun visual effects that are about almost out of nothing in this kind of... And from a very early stage, you know that something goes terribly wrong because there's interviews mm-hmm. of afterwards of people saying, what, well, you know what, eventually... it Just letting you know it won't end well. But the mystery of how it unfolds, the kind of... The turns and double turns of learning who the characters actually are, what what secrets they're hiding, but also just the sheer um, love of filmmaking. And there's a credit at the end that it's like, this is dedicated to making movies with your friends. And it was just such a sheer rush of like, you know, people using COVID not as, well, I've got this script for two people on a cabin that I've been sitting on for 15 years and wasn't good enough to make, but now that it's the only thing we could make, yes, I am looking at you, Alex Garland. Hi there. Um, uh, but that's Our just... one special w- silent guest. One of dozens. <laughs> uh, he should keep his mouth shut after that. Fight, but um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's really my highlight of Terrify this year, but also just of the year. And there's there's a few uh, horror-ish filmmakers of that generation that I've been following. Um, Katet Forzani and um, uh, Jeremy Saunier. And they, they've been kind of contesting for, like, who are my favorites? And we'll see what Katet Forzani do next. But after a disappointment with the previous one, I'd say um, Moorhead Benson are probably awesome. in the pole position. Awesome. Well, You're, I believe... Your turn. Oh, no, I'm going to head over to back to Darren. Well, I, I want to talk about um, films I've seen on a, a little known streaming uh, site called um, Netflix. Uh, Neatflux. Neatflux. Do you guys remember the Neatflux video? Neatflux? No. Uh, <laughs> when it first came out, it had Neatflux. a really crap uh, selection. There was this joke of Neatflux because it was like Game of Thrones season one. Sorry, Game of Thrones season six. And, you know, I was like. Um, <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> wow, that references are wasted on the unreferenced. <laughs> so um, they've. I haven't had a, a very good hit ratio when it comes to Netflix original mm-hmm. movies. They're just okay, and sometimes you just completely forget about them and don't even find them. Um, mm. But however, um, I have. There's been um, three films. Two of which I actually saw in the cinema, um, Pinocchio and Glass Onion, which are both very, very different. Um, and also, uh, just last night, I watched Matilda. Oh, okay. Um, and the, the musical... The musical, the, the Roald Dahl musical. The musical yeah. written by Tim Minchin. Right. And I didn't even know there was a Netflix film of it. Yeah, I well, there is. It last night, there is, buddy. Right. Okay. You better believe it. <laughs> <laughs> who's it directed by or who's... Um, uh, it's... I, I'm asking the hard questions. Yeah, now, I, I honestly uh, don't. I'll research it. You talk. Oh no, no, I can um, because I'm right there. The director is Matthew Wach- Wachos. 
W-A-R-C-H-U-S. That is completely meaningless to me, so tell me what you wanted to say about <laughs> okay. it. Well, uh, Glass Onion is perhaps one of the most entertaining films I've seen this year. It is just pure joy. Mm. It is just incredibly fun. It's got a, a light feel to it. It's more comedic than um, Knives Out. So this Glass Onion, for those um, uninitiated... Um, is the sequel-ish to um, Knives Out. Has the same detective character, but a whole... Benoit Blanc. Benoit Blanc. <laughs> and it, it, this one succeeds more for me, I feel, just because it feels more like a um, Hercule Poirot movie. Right. It, it definitely goes into that more um, ugly Americans on holiday mm. type thing that Def on, on the Nile does. It's just incredibly funny. It is clever. It keeps you guessing at every step. And it's also very rewatchable, I think. I haven't yeah. seen it again yet. I, I lu- was lucky to see it in the cinema. Same, yeah. And it's such a cinematic movie. I feel sorry for those who are only going to be able to see it well, on Netflix. I, do, is, I, I, mean, I pity you. Yes, yes, I feel you, sorry you. for you. I mean, when it comes out you poor in the thing. busiest time of the year, and there's no time or energy to go to the movies. <laughs> but and, there was also only one. It only week. got one week. Yeah. I, I, I week. look what at you and just, I just want to say, oh. It's seriously, I mean, I'm guaranteed if they'd kept that on for more than that they would have raked in some cash but absolutely no, I saw a screening Australia. on like a Sunday night and it was it would have been huge it's basically burning money I can't understand the lid they're just trying to get sense. people to keep their subscriptions yeah up. exactly um, but, but I, it's an interesting to see reactions some people like it better some people don't like my um, sister-in-law uh, was talking about shit. I, I just like the first one better because I felt like it was more of an actual mystery whereas this one it's like kind of without spoiling anything there's kind of a big shift mm. midway through and I, th- I think the main thing is it is very different in structure to the first one and in a lot of that, ways that's what and that's works. something um in the first one you're spending the first third of the movie just getting to know that benoit blanc is somebody that exists or, you know he's not even in it so there's it, or he's just kind of in the corner, and eventually, it like yeah. is there's this grand reveal. So in this one, we're hitting the ground running with that. Um, we have we're moving from old money to new money. We're moving from uh, we're moving to a very different location, and there's a there's a lot of shifts. So I think I think a lot of people's reaction to this one is like, what was your locus of interest in the first one? For me, I think this is successful because the first one does this thing where it kind of steps away from being a mystery in the middle and gets into this, like, the worst car chase of all time, which I think it's actually (laughs) called in the film and all of that. Right. And then kind of comes back to it, whereas this felt like, you know, it has a moment where Mm. it restarts its engine, and I was like, is this going to work? And then 60 seconds later, I'm like, yep, I buy in, and then kept going forward with it. Well, the first one... Was uh, it, it had a lot of heart. The story between Ana de Armas and yeah. uh, Christopher Plummer is just really beautiful, and it's brilliantly acted. Mm. Uh, it's Christopher Plummer. Uh, one of his last roles is just tremendous yeah. in Knives Out. You've seen Knives Out. I've seen Knives Out, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. and and this one is kind of has the oh fuck that attitude and goes a lot more for the the shallowness of these people and yeah. the, and the, speaking of influencer culture and uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. and the sense of fun and um Kate Hudson we're Kate Hudson what she's been is doing. fucking amazing 
amazing. Yeah. She plays a pure idiot in <laughs> in a way I haven't. It, it is just the purity of her idiocy is just yeah. wonderful. It's there's no. Well, yeah, I won't say anything. Yeah. But it, she's she's just she's just fantastic. a character who can't help but get herself cancelled every other week without <laughs> understanding why. <laughs> and, yeah, all the acting's great. Dave Bautista is just oh, strength yes. to strength his, to strength. His acting career is just ridiculous. I mean, you know, because he was he was always good as a wrestler, but he wasn't. I mean, he was he had that you know the physical presence, but mm, yeah, yeah. on the mic. You know, he wasn't quite at the Rock's level, but he's found his niche. And, you know, going from just yeah. just playing the hulking guy behind, you know, the the bad guy in a James Bond film to just being having a hell of a lot of fun and always, always being watchable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh, yeah. I think he outstrips the Rock in the fact that he has he can bring depth to a character. Well, he's with... a character actor and the Rock's a lead. Yeah. And, and as a lead, you rise and fall on the source of... Your material, high black Adam, and uh, <laughs> I, I'm and not I, I haven't seen it Adam. either. To be fair, but also to be fair, no one else has either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ooh, Ooh, sick bird. <laughs> That's right. Um, the rock is coming. But, but Bautista <laughs> has just um, been really wise in taking these supporting roles and and letting um, carving out very specific niches w- within them that are mm. very differentiated and just letting him demonstrate and probably explore as well because he's not you know from a traditional acting background his versatility without um demanding that the whole film rest on his shoulders and so is probably you know i wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now he's has a lot more esteem than the rock does Mm. as an actor because you know the rock's just fallen into this like which tan T-shirt am I wearing in this movie? His Blade uh, Runner character is so that um, yeah yeah is again so much depth, and he only has about ten minutes of screen time. But yeah, it's it's. I mean, you look back on the history of professional wrestlers as actors, and there is an awful lot in the direct-to-video market and the kind of the you know we've written a script around it, and here's the actor, and you're going to get the name star, but actually the guy your co-star is the actor. Yeah, you're yeah. here because you're Stone Cold Steve Austin, or you're the Miz, mm. or you're you know, I mean, Rowdy Roddy Piper definitely had his niche, but I would never call Rowdy Roddy Piper the world's greatest actor. But he was always yeah. fun on the mm. parts. I mean, you but watch They a, Live and you love it, but you don't necessarily think that you need to see ten more movies with Rowdy no, Roddy Piper. Exactly, Rowdy Roddy Piper, and he did plenty of movies, more and Keith pretty David's much he was very Rodney. good at playing Rowdy Roddy Piper. But yeah. you know, if you asked him to, you know, take one of Dave Bautista's roles there, he would not have been able to do it. But he was he was great for what he was. But as I say, I've been a professional wrestling fan since I was you know since mm. the late nineteen eighties, and I've seen some of the movies that some guys have gone into you know like horror movies and things like that. And it's 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 always cringe factor for a lot of these guys that are great in the ring. They can maybe work the mic and get the crowd up, but you give them a script and it's just like, nah, they're better improvisers. Yeah, they're yeah. better just standing in that ring and, and telling Chicago how badly the sports team sucks in the best way. You know, <laughs> Dave Batista was the uh, was the lead in the um, the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas special, and okay. he's hilarious. He's, he just he's got that part nailed, and oh, he was, he was he, the highlight of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Absolutely, it's <laughs> yeah. there's uh, because he's. Uh, it's the edge because he of of the fact that he's a warrior class style character and um, and it's that fish out of water all the time always wanting to be the warrior 
but also um, wanting to steal a um, a blow up elf from uh, <laughs> Kevin Bacon, um, and it's just sort of it. Yeah, I if if you ever enjoyed the Guardian of the Galaxy movies, then seeing the Christmas special is well worth it. Nice. And it I'm also ninety sevens fan, so I'm very curious what, to see. What was that? They're the house band in the Christmas special. Oh yes, the yeah, they're very cool. They're famously one of James Gunn's favorite bands and, and I've been waiting this whole time highly featured. They Peacemaker and everybody else I'm like when is he going to get to the old 97s and yeah, yeah. finally yeah. they are very heavily featured in that okay. um, so and it's something it's once again Disney Strikes Again you will need to see it in order to have some idea of the third one of the movie that's coming up next year of but course you will it's only 40 minutes Oh, look, look at Grinch. Some of us are kind of burned out on even Marvel. I mean, I oh, oh are you talking about burned out? I'm I getting, mean, my worst film yeah. of the year was, and uh, this is this is going to get me cancelled instantly, but it was uh, Black Panther 2. Right. I gave it a one and a half star on that. I didn't think it was worse than Love and Thunder. I... I I it looked like they had actors in the same room, oh, which okay. Love and Thunder didn't. Uh, <laughs> well, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't like Wakanda Forever very much either. But um, to be right. fair, I, ha- I had a recognizable human emotion during Wakanda Forever, even if it was oh, just, I, I, just because, it, oh, Chadwick Boseman's dead and that's sad. Uh, you know. yeah. uh, but um, uh, I do also need to talk about Pinocchio. I thought that it's, I really wanted to see it. I, um, I was really looking forward to it. Got to see it in the cinema. It's Guillermo del Toro doing stop motion animation, and it's I, brilliantly done. I I was just so surprised by it because the film is set in nineteen um, forties Italy, nineteen thirties Italy. Sorry, um, during the rise of uh, Mussolini. Well, of course it is, um, because I mean <laughs> that's that's how. Well, because yeah. it's, a lot of his work is about fascism and the reaction to it, and. This takes very much center stage. It is not like any other Pinocchio I've ever seen. It has, again, um, a depth to it that I wasn't expecting. I, there were some very real tears that were uh, dredged out from me uh, while, whilst watching it. It's there's The story that it's about is, is the exact opposite of what Disney story is. Mm. And I'm not going to say, but it's it is very very obvious when you watch the movie on Netflix right now that um, it's um, that it is very very different in um, in its message, and it's a it's a better message. It's a me- it's a a message that would makes us a be- better people. So mm. it's, um, it's it's so bizarre that three Pinocchio movies came out. In this, one year, yeah. I mean, and one of them was Three. Tom. Yes, because it was Tom Hanks. There were uh, with oh, the then Disney it was one. the Italian one. No, the the Russian uh, animated one with um, Paulie Shaw as the world. Sorry, War what? <laughs> Paulie Shaw is Pinocchio, and yeah, it's it's very much quoted in this household for I want to be a real boy because, <laughs> as, as I say, he really does channel. 90s Paulie Shaw into his performance. <laughs> oh, no. And Jiminy Cricket's been replaced with a horse with the voice of John Hedder. Uh, John Hedder? Um, 
So John Hader from uh, Napoleon Dynamite is here. Who I'm thinking of? Oh, uh, is oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually does do a somewhat of a voice. Uh, there's uh, basically if you want to see that movie, don't. Um, but do see the <laughs> honest trailer uh, clip from it on uh, YouTube because it's frigging hilarious. Uh, but I, I highly recommend. There is actually a fourth appearance of Pinocchio oh, of and a character not named Jiminy Cricket because Jiminy Cricket is a Disney innovation. So in yeah. all of these variations, yeah, um, I think. Um, in the the credits, they all have different names. I, I, yes, and, um, and Puss in Boots: The Last Wish uh, ah. has a very brief Pinocchio cameo, which is absolutely hilarious, and a much more extended appearance from Helpful Cricket. Uh, or something, I forget what the na- character's <laughs> name is. Voice, voice uh, in the style of Jimmy Stewart. Uh, I loved it. I um, oh, so my full cricket. Yeah, no, no, I don't think uh, this is a good time for a lecture in ethics and business uh, practice. Oh, <laughs> it's wow. so brilliant, but the whole film. Um, uh, so my my problems with Pin- Pin- Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. He's uh, just not I a very nice human being. Doug is just saying he's a horrible... That, um, <laughs> when it becomes a musical, I don't think the songs are very interesting or memorable. I'd and, be okay with um, that, yeah. And the opening song to Puss in Boots, I will not sing right now, but I could absolutely sing right now, despite having <laughs> oh, only wow. seen the film once. And it's just such a boisterous introduction. And... Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd, I'd also really enjoyed the first Puss in Boots movie, and I'm not a remotely like. I think the first oh, Shrek was there kind is, of uh, some prison rape uh, mentions in that movie. That uh, you uh, get a few bit. prison rape movies into your kids' what? film. I mean, yeah, yeah in in um, the first Puss in Boots, the uh, the Zach Galifianakis egg character does it does make a few uh, not so uh, well overtish. References. References. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, there is there's a there is a actually hilarious Scarface reference in this film, oh, wow. as well as other ones. So you know, if you're a responsible parent, you'll make sure that your kids fully understand. Uh, <laughs> make yeah, them well, watch well, the three hour uh, the palm of you know, Yeah. It's uh, so they understand the say hello to my little friend riff, uh, and uh, amongst others. But yeah, it just. Um, it's just rollicking. It, it might be a little scary for little. We we brought my five year old nephew, and the big bad wolf character is actually a really intense presence on screen. But um, yeah, I, I, I so the music know. the music was the the, 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 the issue. Well, um, with the I mean, it didn't emotionally land strongly for me. I love the design of it. I'm not actually that familiar with the various pinocchio stories it had probably ah. been decades since i'd seen one right so it was only afterwards unpacking it that i was like oh this is what's invention this is what's not um but i mean i i you know seeing it on the big screen with the uh tactility of the stop motion and all mm. of that was you know such a delight that that was more of what captured my first viewing for me i, I definitely think it was like worth seeing but, so you you weren't um, emotionally captured by it i i was in no flats. no but, yeah uh, no i um uh, i don't know i think i just i just wound up uh, the the yeah i mean i think just the songs took me out of it a bit right. and the um but i still i still i'm glad i saw it and maybe it would land on a second i think a bit sometimes more, things speak to you more 
than others, don't yeah. they? It's, yeah. uh, it, but also, so, you're not dead inside. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, there you are. You, yeah, there's there's, that, there's so. proof. Yeah. Although <laughs> someone confirms that I'm not dead inside. Ha- having, having said that, I cried through like half the Fablemans. So, like, no. who's right. to say? So, yeah, and I wasn't even slightly interested in seeing the Fablemans until you mentioned Yeah, it's the first Spielberg I've really unconditionally been behind since... Wow. Catch me if you can. Like, Munich, I really love, but the last 10 minutes of it are just so stupid that it does. Okay, now we've spent 20 minutes on this, so I will just very (laughs) briefly mention Matilda. It's good. It's really good. It's um, (laughs) The uh, the performances are (laughs) tremendous. It's got... uh, Two of the um, the best British actors working today are playing um, the, her um, mum and dad, who are absolute gargoyles of characters. Stephen Graham and Andre- oh, Andrea yeah. Riseborough. Oh, nice! Uh, are playing just horrible c- cartoon characters. So and make sure your fan- kids see Boiling Point and Possessor before they watch Kill this movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they are fully familiar with their. Uh... Lashana Lynch yes. plays Miss Honey. Now, if you're not familiar with her, she is the first woman to have a double O in the new James Bond nice. movie. So seeing her, and she's playing, kind of the best part in Black Panther. And seeing her, who's she forever. in? Yeah. Oh, is she in there? Yeah. Who's she? She's one of the two uh, sidekicks that goes into oh, the town. Right. Um, I'll look up the character. But name. seeing her playing the sweetest woman on God's earth in in this is just amazing. Just seeing that there's no edges; it's all round. Nice. And uh, Emma Thompson plays the Trunchbull, so she is uh, so she's the uh, very nasty headmistress who um, won a. Um, Won an Olympic medal in hammer throwing. Um, By and- the way, remember why I said Lashana Lynch was in Black Panther? I lied. She's in The Woman King, which oh, is a, oh. the other African warrior film that I saw this but, year, which was not which that actually, great. But oh, she has an amazing... Oh, uh, some people really like it. Okay. I didn't. All right. Anyway, back to Matilda. Yeah, it's um, it's tremendous. This, every song hits. But I think that's because Tim Minchin, who is an amazing comedian and singer, songwriter, has just done some amazing work on the songs. Everything is fun. The um, Watching it, I had the subtitles on, and it's a really good thing to do with, with a musical, especially this one, because all the songs are very wordy. Emma Thompson has two numbers to herself, and she has... They're powerful belter-type songs, because that's her character. Um, so I had no idea she had that kind of voice. I think she she sung... Um, she was Mrs. Potts and Beauty and the Beast. Oh, right, yes. Live action. So she sang the Beauty and the Beast, which is all nice and sweet. And nothing about what she does in this movie right. is nice and sweet. It's quite different to the Danny DeVito film. I believe it's also quite different to the book, but it's been a very long time since I've read the book. But thank you, Netflix. Um, Watch it. It's good. It's really, really good. Fantastic. Uh, um, That's my 20 minutes. He seeds the floor. (laughs) (laughs) We're out of time. Thanks for coming. (laughs) So, over to me. Now, I was also, since I talked about my top movies of the year, I was going to talk about my worst movies of the year, but I already have because nothing has superseded Roller Gator. I've tried. Trust me, I've tried. I watched the very last (laughs) El Santo movie, which El Santo was basically not even in, uh, which... uh, it's basically, I think it's called uh, El Santo and the uh, 
and the and and attack the, of the karate masters. Uh, <laughs> and the crumbling careers. It's, claim. it's, it's, <laughs> oh, it's sorry, the fury of the karate experts is mm. the and there's no, no karate in it. And Santos barely in it. And the karate experts are furious. Though. It's it's well, they're furious that they got cut the out. Fights still got delayed yeah. and they're busy. There's, 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 the there's, there's a brief bit of there's one fight scene where someone like maybe throws a, a karate chop and the rest of it. There's not even a lot. There's, he doesn't even get in a wrestling ring. It's so it's. I got to the within twenty minutes of the end of it. Notice went yeah I've seen enough. I've I've so that doesn't even count as the worst movie because it was just dull. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would have a look at some of the other movies that I did watch this year on Shudder because Shudder has been my go-to. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give a recommendation with a cravat because it's not going to be for everybody to with be a cravat. A cravat. A cravat. Oh, a caveat. A caveat. That. You know, one of those. Um, one of those words I've seen written but never said until now. Uh, the Innocence, uh, which is... Um, how can I describe the new this? The innocence Hadn't, or the old one? Hmm? It's the new one. Oh, um, the one with the, the kids demon with superpowers? kids. The su- it's super basically... To, is that on Shutter now? It is on Shutter awesome. now. Awesome. And the oh, well, wow. US Shutter, probably. I don't know if it's on New Zealand Shutter, but... He's a thief. He's a thief. And <coughs> he's, I, he's, I, he's I, a Violent Night again? Yep. <laughs> anyway. Damn you. <laughs> so, directed by Eskil Voigt. Uh, Voigt. Uh, and this is um, <laughs> you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to it, uh, you know. So the Innocents played it in the shade earlier this year, and yes, had a very so. brief theatrical release. And to borrow a term from Darren from earlier this episode, dark as balls. It is. It's basically the most realistic p- p- portrayal of what would happen if someone who has too young for a moral compass got oh, superpowers. Shoot. And everything and it isn't Brightburn. No, and the, the first the like the, the description literally on the shuttered one was that in the bright sunshine of I think it's Norwegian this movie. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, Norway. Yeah, Norway. Norway. I think it's yeah. a co-writer of Worst Person in the World. Oh, okay. ah, yeah. right. So it's the in the bright sunshine of Norway, uh, four children develop uh, powers and things get dark, and it's like things don't get dark; they start dark because one of the kids in it has is. You know, a 10-year-old boy, and 10-year-old boys do shit because 10-year-old boys don't think about the consequences of their actions. So, I mean, literally when they find a cat near the start of the movie and he says the words, shall we kill it? It's like, this is about 15 minutes into the movie. It's not that it starts off all happy and sunshiny. There's a dark undercurrent to show a childhood. There's that that violence that can happen at any time for no reason that, you know, is not even thought about, and the consequences aren't thought about. And then you throw into the mix that four children are starting to develop powers, psychokinesis and oh, and different things like that. And the, where they go with it, it ends with, and I'm, I'm not going to give too many spoilers on it, but the, the end battle, if you've seen any movies where there's a psychic battle between two psychic characters mm. and it's all special effects and lightning and things flying around, no, just the most realistic portrayal of that. It's... Basically, in a huge area with people around, and nobody is noticing what's going on, except for, and it's just this beautiful shot of children coming out on balconies around there from distance away, looking at this, not reacting to it, just coming out, wow. just drawn in by it. The performances by the kids are phenomenal. The yeah. script just keeps you basically going. You're halfway. I mean, I was. I think I was halfway through when Dawn tapped out. 
Dawn went, this is too dark. She couldn't watch it. Oh, I actually, de- I deliberately skipped seeing it because I wasn't sure I could deal with it this year. I, I think it was um, our, our friend who is into gory and nasty. It was one of her favourite films. It's, right. it's, it's, I wouldn't say that it's definitely not gory, but it goes down some dark paths. But yeah. I'm really glad I followed it because it's, it. I, you could sort of say it, it goes towards a happy ending, but it's not really. It's definitely one that you... You endure the first half, and then you just you start hoping that there's going to be some sort of interference. That some maybe someone there's going mm. to be some maybe some adult might get involved in this. Nope, this is all about the kids. This is just the interplay between two very strong personalities. Of course, and you start throwing in you know and this and the special effects on it. Uh, I'd say restrained. It's it's not throwing a massive Hollywood budget at stuff and, you know, throwing things around the place and things, but when it's used, it's used very, very effectively. Um, I, I'm, Shudder has been my streaming service of the year. Shudder and Tubi. Tubi for the for the shit, for the, <laughs> the stuff that you can't find anywhere where you can just look at something and go, interesting title, I'll watch that, hmm. see what happens. And Shudder for the just the consistent... Mm-hmm. level of, of, of curation there right. and it's, I'm really freaking disappointed to hear that of course they've been caught up in the, the, the streaming wars and uh, have had big job cuts there because right, I, I mean, don't maybe know you should get to catch up with what I've missed there while they're still around yeah mm. it's, I think they will still be that's around, been a big news story of this year though of how more and more of these uh, streaming services are pulling original things that were commissioned for yeah. them and like Right now, technically, Wiping I think there's no legal way to watch Westworld. No, it's gone. It'll the be as, series, not the. And as, as someone it's still mentioned, on neon, though, isn't it? Oh well, at least in America. Yeah. In America, it's gone. I mean, as yeah. someone said, in ten years' time, you'll find it on whatever the form of Tubi is, and for free with ads, because that's what's happening. They don't want to pay rights to the creators, so they pull it. They pull it off it's streaming, and they so basically underhand. delete. It's just... the, and the animation, and with um, the uh, with the Warner's uh, Discovery. It was just as a one discovery. Yeah, I think that's why. But that, it's just horrific. They're just pulling stuff and basically deleting it, and you won't be able to see it again legally. So right. there Unless is. You've already bought a DVD. Or but Blu-ray most or... of these streaming ones aren't put on physical discs. Well, well, Westwing is uh, not yeah, Westwing. Westworld. <laughs> Westworld. Westworld. But yeah. a lot of these animated ones, especially the Animators Guild, are up in arms because they don't. There's, the contract just doesn't say anything. No, we're not going to put that on Blu-ray. No one's going to buy that. It's on streaming service. They can watch it any time they want. Wow. Ooh changed our mind I mean Netflix has got a real bad habit of going you're in two seasons right you want to go to get a pay rise for the next season cancelled yeah so TV series will literally be on cliffhangers for the third season and then be just mm. nah you're done we're not gonna give you more money so I think the stream wars are gonna be interesting in the next years we're gonna see some companies either disappear or there's gonna be some mergers we're gonna be getting back into the cable days where you're gonna have bundled packages because, Innocence, was that practical effects or um it's they're CGI but it's it's well done CGI. Okay. So it's And because it's restrained it means that they don't have to do it's that. It's not much. that you you constantly waiting for the next big mm. special effects sequences. It was when it happens, quite often when it happens it's quite shocking. The effects mm. but, in there. Mm. So it is as I say, it's dark as hell. You need to be in the right frame of mind. And I watched it on a day like today with beautiful bright sunshine outside mm. and the room felt dark. I felt like I was even though once again, on screen, beautiful summer Norway, you know, yeah, nice yeah. scenic area. But what was happening there was a very dark underbelly. And it's, you know, it's it a tradition of daytime horrors, like who can kill a child and things like that, where it's like 
the actual Do like I see a show of hands Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's my Sunday. Who cares? Ask a difficult question. <laughs> yeah. But I think a true Mac horror is if you can shoot it in daylight and still make it scary. Because mm. there's so many horrors that are shot in daylight horror. Down. I mean, the car, one of my all-time favorite movies, yeah. Tremors. Tremors. I mean, yeah, daytime yeah. horror there. And it's um, and especially these days because I don't know about you, but 2022 lighting is fucking horrific at times. Mm. I mean, I saw screenshots of the new Hellraiser movie, and it put me off seeing the actual Hellraiser movie because they're beautiful makeup, but someone literally on the internet had to turn up the the brightness of the picture so you could see it because it was in pitch darkness. And it's like if you shoot it like that, I'm out. All right, I've I've seen too many movies where I've had to where I've started at the wrong time of day and had to go, I'm going to come back to this at night with all the lights off because it's yeah. too dark. There's a There's been a uh, push for that for a couple of reasons. One is that um, when you're in a grading suite, right, you can, you're seeing it under perfect conditions. Yeah. And so people who have pushed back against artificial lighting have... Mm-hmm. You know, for nighttime, it's like let's make it feel like that. Like it's like and it's like that's great if you're watching in a room that's completely darkened on a perfectly calibrated monitor, and you're having that experience. But it's not a very resilient uh, thing. And you know, if there's so just this is a, something that streaming has brought yeah, to the fore. Well, it's just something that I think there's a there's another couple things, and and one is that um, often people in their home sets. Mm-hmm overblow their brightness mm-hmm. and uh-huh. so yep. they're kind of compensating sometimes for that to be like oh well we want it to be dark and so things that are kind of shot in what used to be normally look dark would suddenly look bright and I um, I can't tell too many tales about this story so everybody will remain anonymous but I had a friend who worked with a director and the director was complaining it's like why are you making this sh- show so bright and my friend was like I'm not. It's really dark. And he finally, like, he like showed pictures of his TV. It's like, and showed some other shows. I'm like, all of those are too bright. Your TV's about yeah. set. And mm. so, so allegedly, that was Peter Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, Peter. We can't back it up, and we no. have no facts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 and so, um, you have this thing where people are watching things in such different circumstances yeah. that one person's just right will be another person's incomprehensibly dark will be another person's yeah. overlit. I mean, the, and, the default settings on most TVs are not. Set, uh, set for streaming services. They're not set for watching movies. They're not set. They, and that's you know. another thing is streaming services will compress things as well. So mm. the blacks will suddenly become very noisy if you yeah. bring up the darkness. So getting just the painterly quality of the black as opposed to having it look quite noisy is something that some DPs will do to darken yeah. things. And even, I mean, if you go back and watch retro stuff, I've discovered 90s movies look beautiful on. 2022 TVs, mm. but the audio is always a bit of an issue. It always seems to fade in the background a lot of times. Mm. So I've, mm. I literally have started watching movies with subtitles. Either I'm going deaf in my middle age, uh, or um, it's just a lot of times it's the technology is not quite meshing. Sometimes. That's but I think, a major problem with streaming. I mean, I d- Matilda, which I really enjoyed, we had to turn it up when the um, when it was just the normal talking bits. And down yeah, when it was the singing, um, yeah. because it just right. the sound was just all over the fucking show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. We we. Um, it's funny you mentioned '90s because I'm going to mention uh, we did a '90s double feature on Boxing Day, my wife and I, 
uh, of movies we wanted to rewatch, and we rewatched Heat and Casino. Oh, um, nice. I'm not going to talk about Heat. It's it's a five-star movie. It's great, blah, blah. Uh, we could go on a long time about it. Um, but I think everybody... I, I, think, I feel like Heat has a lot more uptake... Uh, than Casino does. Heat has um, a lot of... Uh, what's the word? Heat. Heat. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. And Casino has a lot of no. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, and at, at the time, even, it was kind of written off as Scorsese kind of retreading Goodfellas. And I disagree with that strongly. I mean, I even have a list on letterbox called films that want to be good fellows but aren't and my my note on it is no casino is not included in this list because casino wants to be casino and it is awesome um and it is uh, to talk about what's so great about casino for me i have to get into something that's kind of a bit technical which is that when you watch a film as an editor sometimes there's bits that you can tell are kind of like that was just a Hail Mary pass in the editing suite. And sometimes you can tell, like, this is so carefully calculated on set that, you know, it's like there's sometimes films that you watch that get best editing, and it's like all that editor did is take the director's storyboards and timings and assemble that, and it's a well, Mm -hmm. you know, any, any halfway decent editor would have put that together like that. And... And I think each type of film has a different feeling to it. And I think even untrained viewers will know when they're watching something that's very Hitchcockian that feels like you're being led quite tightly by the neck through a maze. And other t- and when you're watching that something that's John Cassavetes and feels very loosey-goosey and you kind of don't know where it's going next. And the miracle of Casino is that it kind of moves from one of those feelings to another. Because oh, okay. um, Scorsese is very much the, yeah. the drifting camera. I mean, that was Goodfellas. Well, and yeah, and there's an amazing long take that goes uh, that follows the mo- money into the count room and back here. And there's other great long takes, and there's mm-hmm. other things that are very choppy. Um, this is a film that was made near kind of the early days of nonlinear editing, and there's a lot of exploration going on in the edit suite with still frames and overlaps. Um, there's some crazy stuff going on with music in this where, like, um, there won't just be one track, but there'll be multiple tracks. Like, there's a point where um, De Niro's in the desert and Pesci's showing up to meet him for a pivotal meet, and um, the theme from Contempt is playing. And then as Pesci's um, car comes in, the theme from Contempt continues while this other old-time rock and roll comes in. Oh, and, wow. if you th- and if you think about Vegas and kind of the collision and overwhelm mm-hmm. of the sights and sounds, and also just, like, the way that it moves from, like, the mechanics of it into the character stories and back, like, because in Vegas you're always subsumed by the mechanics of this larger town, and that's the thing that um, uh, De Niro's character, Sam Ace Rothstein, you know, explains in his voiceover at the beginning, uh, which winds up being actually, I think, four or five voices come into the mm-hmm. film at various points. And so you're getting this cacophony of these various um, ideas. And But what's also really interesting about um, Ace Rothstein is he's such an unusual character by Scorsese standards. You know, the Scorsese quintessential characters of 
you know, Travis Bickle or Jake LaMotta mm-hmm. or um, Henry. Um, Henry Hill from Goodfellas are all these characters who let their emotions get the best of them. And certainly mm-hmm. um, Nikki Santori in Casino is very much an example of that. But East Rothstein is just a character who's like carved out this very kind of what he feels like should be a simple niche for himself. He's like, I like to do this thing, which is, you know, he comes famous within mob circles for being able to be impossibly good at guessing the odds and understanding systems. And so it's like, Mm -hmm. let's get you out to Vegas where you can just use this in a legal setting and just nail the fuck out of it. And so all he has to do is do what he does well have people in his life who he can trust to help him do it well, the end. And of course that's not how it works. Well, it is, but actually. um and and part of and it's just and it's so fascinating though to watch it from just that character perspective. And also because his character arc is so different from those character arcs and those other films and it took me four times. I think this is the fourth time I've watched it. But this is the first one where the real emotional payload hit at the end of like what it means to have had that kind of because it's one of De Niro's great performances and watching Heat and Casino back to back which are both very tightly controlled characters tightly Mm. controlled performances and certainly seeing it back to back with either your Joe Pesci as your offsider, mm-hmm. or uh, Al Pacino going, because he's got a huge ass, you know. <laughs> as he, you know uh, hysterically, by the way, just as a quick heat aside, um, the director's definitive cut Blu-ray has an extra where um, Pacino, De Niro, and Mann talk with Christopher Nolan about the making of it at a screening at the Academy. And Pacino's like, so I've never said this. And it's not on screen in the movie, but Mann and I agreed that um, Vincent Hanna's, you know, does a little bump of cocaine every now and again. So that's why there's some of those uh, performance decisions. If you're wondering why the character gets a little bit, I'm not, it's not an uncontrolled performance. It's just, a, you know, it's like clearly very, um, that. And that also explains why you just did Pacino as the cookie monster. <laughs> <laughs> cocaine! And he got a huge ass! He's talented. He can do cookie monster. <laughs> cocaine, cocaine, cocaine. Also, cookie monster can probably do Pacino. Cool. <laughs> Very talented too. <laughs> I, I think actually cutting the cookie monster into every single Pacino movie. Wow. Just like showing to him like wolf and cookies. It's a year's project. Uh, yeah. oh, fantastic. Uh, well, you know, it's time for your New Year's resolution in mind that I can. I, I can think of worse ideas. We might have to cut this bit so it can be original when it no, comes no, out. No, no. Yeah, honestly, if somebody, it's one of those ideas. If somebody beats me. Too, I'm happy. Some 19 year old who's, yeah. who wants to Can learn how to do that. Go it might prove someone's listening. Um, to anyway, this. yeah. So, um, Casino definitely like uh, if you're just kind of had a superficial Scorsese thing and haven't gone to that one, I think that it's a great time to revisit it. No. It's always a great time. To I, revisit I'm it. not even entirely sure I've seen it all the way through. And and I was talking to to Doug on the way here today uh, that I think it's it's time to. To do a, um, a Scorsese mop-up and mm. make sure I've seen all the all the all of it. 
Right. I've been, a, I've been redoing a lot of his stuff, and it's especially this 90s period where I just only recently discovered Age of Innocence, and I rewatched Cape Fear earlier this year, and I'm like, man, That's he doesn't get a lot of credit for his 90s work, but he was just on fire during that whole little stretch, and, and Kundun, which I've also revisited recently, which is so ambitious and visually striking, and um, again, because it's a very atypical Scorsese character there's parts of it that don't necessarily land but if you think about his kind of themes of faith and promise and if you see it in the light of a film like uh silence which comes later it suddenly you can draw a braid through that and back to last temptation of christ i mean you know scorsese only makes gangster films and he's no good because he doesn't (laughs) like marvel movies but if you put that aside uh you know um you could that gangster film kundun is pretty good yeah Um, okay well um uh, I recently, it's uh, back to me, um, um, recently did an inadvertent, ludicrously specific day. Whoopsie daisy. We're um, uh, watching Christmas films. Uh, started with a film that I watched, I saw about five minutes of about 15, 16 years ago. Um, on Christmas Day, uh, we were just heading out the door to to um, Christmas celebration somewhere. Uh, just put on the TV, and there was a scene with uh, Wallace Shawn giving a real dramatic performance, which is interesting in itself right. because it. Well, I mean, you'd think it's inconceivable, <laughs> but uh, uh, he so, had to go there. <laughs> he had to go there. So, because um, he's mainly known from Princess Bride and Rex from Toy Story. The, it's funny because I mostly know him from, like, um, My Dinner with Andre. Yeah, and 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 there. <laughs> <laughs> I made it. But sorry, you were downloading what now? Fasted. You were fasted. So I watched this thing for five minutes, and it stayed with me because I just thought, wow, I really want to... I want to be able to track that down. I want to see what it is. It's a film called Carol's Christmas. It's a a Christmas TV movie. Uh, He is the second build in it, but it's essentially a a guy gets visited by the spirits of Christmas. Um, It turns out that the one they wanted is the, the mean Wallace Shawn who lives across the road. But they think, what the hell? We're here anyway. Let's do it. So they, uh, <laughs> and it's it's quite fun. It's got Larry Miller. If I don't know if you know him, uh, stand up American stand up comedian. He's one of the ghosts, and it's um, a fair bit of fun. Um, but what it, the real meat of the situation is why the Wallace Shawn character is so dark and angry and and just a bastard. And there's a lot of loss and a lot of sadness. Mm. And he he hits it. He plays every beat, every note just wonderfully. And it's a, it's a fun little film. It's, I enjoy, it's a good Christmas film. It makes you feel happier at the end of it. And not just because it's finished. Um, <laughs> nice. So it's called Carol with a K, Carol's Christmas. Yeah. Then, you could call um, it a Christmas Carol, really, couldn't you? Well, Although if you did, I then I wouldn't the see point, it. Because, the, that's the point yeah. of making it 
different. If you did call oh, it that, I wouldn't I say it because, I, as yeah. I mentioned, I think in passing, probably not on the podcast, maybe on the podcast, I never, ever need to see a straight version of the Christmas Carol movie ever again in my life because they're all the fucking same. And if they don't have the Muppets in them, I'm not a <laughs> Now, the, um, the... So that was on Off YouTube. The um, second one was Apple TV, and that was Spirited. That's the new Ryan Reynolds, Will Ferrell musical. Yep. And it's really good. And I was very surprised. I was <laughs> not expecting it to be much chop. Um, Ryan Reynolds is his usual typical smarmy asshole, but it's played a he's little a, bit a differently. Charming asshole. Yes, yeah, he's playing, even charm, if he's playing charming, smarmy yeah. asshole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was tricky to say. <laughs> he's an armhole. Let's an arm just go. <laughs> <laughs> right, but it's it's a lot of fun. Octavia Spencer um, has a uh, one solo song, and it's my favourite song of the whole thing. The end credits of the movie have a a song that they cut out of the film, which is probably one of the better songs. Um, uh, just better sequences. It's. Um, it's funny. It's long. It's <laughs> it's two hours and ten minutes. It's long, but it's Netflix. When you don't watch your movies to have editors, yeah. <laughs> well, well a- a- Apple in this case. Oh, Apple! Oh, they're all all the streaming services are doing yeah. too, too many. But too it's long um, it's a lot of fun, and it was um, it definitely plays with the Christmas Carol story, um, and it's yeah, and and it's it's strange that I saw Carol's Christmas before it because it goes with the idea that the spirits are a business, and it's a and that they they do this all the time. They pick out someone and they and Carol's Christmas did that, and then Spirited does it on a huge uh, fucking budget. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's actually worth seeing. I, I don't know if it would be a watch every year type thing, but it's worth a look. And then once I realised, oh, hell, I've just watched two Christmas Carol movies in a row, I thought, fuck it, let's do Muppets Christmas Carol, which is just tremendous. And um, I... Um, I, I I warned my mum, who I was watching it with, I am going to be singing all these songs. Oh, of course you are. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> and it was just fantastic. I mean, it's, uh, that's blowing my own trumpet. I was just fantastic. I hit the notes every time. But it was... Um... That was worth getting disowned for. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if Michael Caine can sing, so can I. Just, just That's a, a just... pretty big if, having seen him up at a Christmas carol. <laughs> just, just a warning, if you're not one of our immediate circle of friends and you're listening to this podcast and you ever do meet Darren and you do happen to end up watching Little Shop of Horrors, he will sing every song on that well I, I i was in the stage um, <laughs> every song <laughs> but it's um yeah it, there's just it's just wonderful that film and it, it, i remember when i first saw that movie it's um it was the first film out from from jim henson dying and it was uh, my brother and I. So this was back in what ninety eight. Yeah, yeah, ninety eight. Yeah. My brother and I went to um, up the road to the Monterey Cinema in Howick. We walked up there, and the whole time we were thinking, "Oh, we're too old for this. It's this isn't going to be any good." He, uh, Jim Henson's gone, so this is just 
we basically were talking ourselves into, oh no, sod it, it's, why are we doing this? <laughs> um, mainly because I think previously we had the experience of, uh, at my brother's insistence, of going to see A Weekend at Bernie's 2, which I still blame my brother for. Yeah. I can see that, yeah. <laughs> so, um, we got to the cinema, We wa- the movie started, and there was that sort of kiddie feel to it, and then when they do the um, the um, Mr. Humbug, yeah, thing, comes yep. Mr. Yeah. we were just absolutely bought into it, mm. and it was just wonderful. And it's and my, my enjoyment, my love of this movie has grown every single time I've seen it. I don't know the if absolute, you... Yeah, I love it, and the absolute commitment. I rewatched it last Christmas... And the absolute commitment of Michael Caine. Oh, it's amazing. I, I can't it's remember stunning. how many, if there are many other humans in it or not. No, but he's, I, he's, he's the, the only one. one. Well, oh, no, but he's no, not no, the actually, only no, one. No, sorry, there is as well as there's, son. There is a, yeah, there's son, the, and there's a couple other people. Yeah, there's, but, there's a few. But just like, there is so. never a moment that he winks to the camera that he's acting with puppets. No, no. He's just like, and just the level of that just brings you into that world and um yeah i mean i don't really like you skeet i don't ever care if i see a christmas carol again as a story but i will need to introduce my nephews to it yep. and there's no question like this is the version i'll be showing you know? absolutely yeah. and um i i read an interview with him recently that said that uh, he he approached this as I'm going to be I'm acting with the RSC the Royal Shakespeare Company that was what he had in his mind so he wasn't acting with puppets they were members of the Royal Shakespeare Company and he was doing it as seriously as that well if you see any backstage footage of people acting with the Muppets they are whenever the camera they're in between and they're talking they talk to the puppets they don't talk to the puppeteer they're always talking to Kermit in character, because it's it's just become that thing, I think, for the actors. Yeah. That, that is your co-star. The guy yeah. down on the floor with his hand up Kermit's arse he says, is, is just yeah. a prop, basically. He, he said in the, in the interview that um, when when things go wrong... Uh, no, that wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> we apologised uh, to Mr. Michael Caine. Uh, he said when things go wrong, he swears at the... At the characters, he swears at Kermit. <laughs> what the fuck do you think you're doing, Kermit? <laughs> no, that was still not very good. <laughs> uh, well, and it's definitely his better of his two Christmas movies because the other one, which is a Christmas, is Jaws: The Revenge. Uh, which is it Christmas? Have, is technically said, it, and it does turn up on Christmas movie lists. Wow, is, that's wow, that's, it's a, that's it's like a Caribbean is. Christmas, and there really isn't that much Christmas. No, I, oh, we're, we're, we're actually looking at the even more ludicrously <laughs> oh. specific of of number fours that were set at oh, Christmas, and I can't. No, I, I just can't. <laughs> I was given it on DVD by one of our friends Nick uh, a few years ago, and I don't think I watched it because I've seen it multiple times, but. <laughs> It was kind of like, you'll love this. I'm like, yeah. And then I'm, every time I go to put it, I'm like, do I really want to watch Jaws the Revenge again? The answer in the back of my head is yes. But at some stage, only really for Mario Van Peebles performance as oh, wow. lovable uh, Jamaican guy who was so loved by the test audience that when he died in the movie, they practically rioted and they had to re-shoot a scene where he came back from the dead, even <laughs> though he'd been in 
in the shark's mouth with blood <laughs> pissing they everywhere. They didn't even change. They didn't even take that bit out. No, they still had him in the shark's mouth, <laughs> blood everywhere, disappears underwater, and something like fifteen minutes later, he just he floats to the surface, and they go, "Oh, he's alive! Hooray! Happy ending!" Tis but a scratch. Just a puncture, one or two or three. I mean, the only thing I really know about Jaws: The Revenge is that it's famously the movie that Michael Caine was shooting when he got his Academy Award. Couldn't go. He was in the Bahamas here. He was in yeah. the Bahamas. Yeah. And uh, and the famous quote of, you know, oh, yes. I hear it's a piece of shit. I've never seen it. I've seen the house that I bought with the money, and that's yeah. quite lovely. Is that specifically <laughs> he, yes, about Charles he bought his yeah. house, He bought his mother a house with the money from it. So, you know, sometimes you got to take the pay, day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so over to me for my final... Flick before we actually start talking about movies. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of talking that one because I've seen a couple of real good ones since the last. I, I, I definitely, once I had my 360 type movies for the year, I've kind of slowed down a little bit. And this oh, last month, of course, was, was not really conducive for watching a lot of movies. You know, several days I would pour a glass of wine and I was too tired to drink it, which is, for me, that's something. Um, I did watch Eastern Condors. Uh, thanks for that. Oh, oh, yes. I borrowed Doug's, uh, oh yeah, I need to get that. Yes, back yeah, from you. borrowed a Blu-ray set of it so I could see Eastern Condors, which is phenomenal, isn't it? Uh, weird. The Yao Yankovic story is yes. just one of the best movies this year. One of the funniest movies I've seen for a long time. Mm-hmm. Not the funniest movie experience I had because that was a group watch of Ninja Three: The Domination with uh, <laughs> my son in attendance for the first time. And that was me programming so I on the fly. On the fly, it was, it was our great. last movie of wow. the, before we headed home. For and there was a group of us, about about eight of us, and eighty percent of the dialogue you couldn't hear because it was the biggest riff fest I've ever heard. <laughs> and even my son was dropping lines. I mean, we they, they get to the the funeral scene where there's a shootout at a funeral, but it, as they they take the flag off the off the coffin, my son says, "Oh, it's an unboxing video," and absolutely <laughs> wrecked the room. So yes, we have another me in the making, and fantastic. Oh. So that is, and I thought it was safe to play movie. because his mum and dad were both there. We don't mind, you know. There was, there was, you know, there's a bit of buttocks. We don't care, you know. I, I, I don't think buttocks were the. Uh, is, yeah. is, is, the the use of V8 in that movie. We had it. He had actually watched earlier the night with us, Fright Night, and Fade to Black. So um, yeah. I, I'm yeah. either a terrible father or the best. Uh, the day after, though, I did watch a movie based on a title alone. Uh, Cries of Ecstasy, Blows of Death, which is on Tubi. Is it a porn? It's kind of. <laughs> it is. If you imagine, it's actually 51 minutes of surviving footage edited together into a, air quotes, movie, uh, which is from uh, 1973, as you can probably imagine. And it's kind of halfway between we're going to make a, a post-apocalyptic art movie in the vein of kind of, you know, Soylent Green or something. Uh, but we also like titties, so we're also going to make a softcore movie, and somehow that became two scripts warped into one. But there's uh, no reason that art can't have titties. Exactly, most art films have some titties, but this one was just kind of like, we're making a softcore movie, no, I'm making an art movie, you're the same guy, you're the director! <laughs> uh, so, if you want to break your brain, that is a, that is a, a, that is a thing. It is a thing. It is a thing. My One of my top discoveries this year, though, I'm, I'm going to have to talk about... Uh, and I don't watch a lot of anime, but Memories from 1995 mm. uh-huh. is absolutely phenomenal. It's it's a anime sci-fi uh, anthology movie, and what caught me was, of course, the with seeing from the director of Akira, yes. and I fucking love Akira. And mm. I, this was actually my most popular tweet of the year because I put up just the movie poster and said, "Now watching Memories." That was the entire tweet with the right. poster. 
and I came back after the movie and it was going ding, 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 ding as people were just all over that movie. Is Memories the Kristen Stewart of um, Japanese anime where you just mention it and it's just suddenly a... It pretty much was. Uh, for, for two days, there were still mentions coming in on there wow. and people liking that. And it was something... I mean, my average tweet will have, you know, 25, 30 likes, maybe, you know, 150. Wow, great. This one had... Two and a half thousand likes and something like two hundred retweets. And I went, "Am I? Is this what going viral feels like?" It kind of stopped after that, so it was not so much viral, just a, a brief call. I don't know. Did you but... get death threats for no good reason? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, fortunately, I did say that I loved it, so I didn't. If I'd said oh, it's overrated, then yes, someone would have burnt my house down yeah. because the internet. I, I watched Perfect Blue for the first time this year. Absolutely, you were a champion. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's Satoshi Kon. Who I watched Millennium Actress this I've year, which I think I've talked about on an earlier one, mm. and which is a phenomenal film. Yeah, he's um, a very uh, he has a very passionate following. So to say underrated isn't quite right, but maybe underknown. Um, but I think and it's a giallo. That was the the amazing yeah. thing about yeah. Perfect Blue. It's, it's an great amazing well. giallo, and it hits all the yeah. all the perfect spots of a giallo. Yeah, yes. I haven't. I watched it before I'd seen much giallo, so I thought it was interesting, but I haven't gone back to it now that I mm. know what a cello is very well. <laughs> but um yeah, Millennium Actress and Paprika and uh Perfect Blue and and then Tokyo Godfathers, I think, which I haven't seen, but it's right. a remake of uh, three, three Godfathers. Godfathers I think are those are his John Ford. Yeah. His and major ones, does have a lot of classic um anime on there. And I mean if you can put up with a few ads through it. But this really did suck me in because it's it's got I think three stories, and there's a middle one's a little bit weaker than the others, but the animation alone is gorgeous. Mm. So you just sit there and just drink this in. Mm. And very much, I mean, when you can tell, um, when um, I'm going to have to try and pronounce it, Katsuhiro Otomo, who is the creative Akira, mm-hmm. his segment is phenomenal, and I really wish he'd probably, he has he has done a few things that I've seen, but I, I really wish he'd been given. Because they're all three three different directors? Three different it's directors. It's Mamoru Oshii's. Yeah. Also, it's just three, it's three, three stories. Three stories by three different directors, so it's an anthology. Anthology of three, though. And they kind of, they do kind of link into each other, but it's, it is well seen. Even if you're not an anime fan, because it's, uh, some anime sometimes I can, I can give, I can live with or live without, is for instance, I started watching um, the Attack on Titan series with my son, and right. it was great. But at some times, it's also what I would like to quote as slightly too Japanese, where it doesn't quite translate. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, you'll start getting things in there which are and the TV series, especially. You'll get the episode which is just utterly filler, where for twenty minutes they do nothing. You know, Pokemon. Let's I'm looking do at our you. tax return. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Pokemon. I'm looking at you because there's always that filler mm. episode, so they run too long, but. Having this in a two-hour-long movie, which is for me, was the perfect length for this because the three stories they needed two of them needed time to breathe. One was a little bit shorter, the middle section, which didn't have as as complex a plot. So the others do did need time to breathe, time to expand, time for you to actually enjoy them. And you, you know, I've seen recently Robot Carnival, which is I think has six or seven stories in there, which is great as well. But a couple of the stories you kind of feel get cut off a little bit too soon. You needed a little bit more time for that. You know, and there's, you know, I think the shortest one's only about seven or eight minutes long, and it feels like you're watching Love, Death and Robots all at one, just binge-watching it. But this one, everything was fleshed out enough. So that has got a real high recommendation for me, as I say, even as a a non-anime fan, fantastic stuff. So 
And I'll, I'll definitely you know, be looking next year at a few new things here because I, I definitely I was quite heavy on sci-fi action horror this year and those those you know close to 400 movies. But I've I've I've, I've I think I've stretched my wings and this podcast has helped and you'd be glad to know I double featured uh, Koyana Squatsi and Power Quatsi. Uh, on the same day, which is a trip. I have experience. seen neither of those. Wow. Well, Squatsy we'll went up for me because I, the first time I saw it, I went, this is phenomenal. And I watched this time and I went, no, this is a fucking masterpiece. This is just, I mean, I, and I have to see it on the big screen at some stage. If anyone, if there's ever a revival screen. There was a Civic screening about yeah. five years ago. And the they put festival. it back on, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm ditching work and I'm there. I don't yeah. give a shit if it's Christmas Eve. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. Because <laughs> yeah. it was, an, I mean, I, yeah. I pulled up to the fourth row of the Civic and was just like, yeah. fire hose me with time-lapse photography. Yeah, and yeah, and that, that music, I want that music <laughs> on the Civic speakers as well. That Philip Glass music is, is yeah. great. Second one, Power Quatsy, I think good, not as Definitely, consistent, yeah. and the music was a little, it was almost a little too frenetic at times, a right. little too harsh. Whereas the Philip Glass music, you just basically drift through that, and then there's that rise as you get to the end of the movie as it starts showing humans and things start yeah. speeding up, and you're just like, well, look at us fucking up the planet. You yeah. go, humans. I got to meet him, Godfrey Reggio. Oh, um, nice. I was at uh, the Telluride Film Festival, and um, he, um, we were waiting to see. Uh, Edward Yang's Yee Yee, and I was just in line next to this guy, and we started talking, and it was one of those things where it's like, he was like, Godfrey, and, 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 and then it's like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, and uh, I found out about his years living in a monastery and all this stuff, and he is, wow. you know, very, um, you know, very unusual, hmm. uh, I, mean, I mean, I don't mean unusual as a per like, he, he was quite a normal guy to talk to yeah. in a lot of ways, but his... His way of life, and also even in the context of what one normally thinks of as a working filmmaker, definitely much more about like having these ideas and taking long periods of time to think yeah. about how to express them. And um, you know, I mean, the stuff footage for Corian Scotsi was shot over many, many years. seven years. It took seven yeah. years with the footage. I mean, he wasn't not prolific, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think he's still alive. He did a film called Visitors uh, in twenty. 20- sometime in the mid-2010s. Yep. And um, there's a third film in the Katsi series, which unfortunately is not very good, Nikoi no. Katsi. Uh, it has some early experiments with integrating digital animation that ah, um, it's that, kind that, of like, oh, look, falling dollar signs. Ah, you know, it just, it's just yeah, a bit... Feel a bit, yeah. a bit YouTube cheesy. Yeah, it's not great. Um, yeah, he's done eight films in his entire career. Okay. So was that was that your film? That was the. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> done with it. So one. I just wanted to point that out. But that, um, as I say, Koana Squatsy, for you know the, the genres I normally watch, you'd think would be outside the norm, but it's becoming a real favorite. That one. Yeah. It's, it's with me. If I if you if they ever did a double feature, and this would be an odd double feature of Koana Squatsy and the Monkey's Head, uh, I, I get would it. be I'd be four rows back like you, just going. Hit me with the surrealism and the, and the oh, visuals. Man, yeah. <laughs> what uh, on a completely different note, but just very briefly, one film I saw this year that really stands out: uh, uh, Nobody's Fool, the Paul Newman. I saw that theatrically. I remember really liking it. It's a Robert Benton film with Bruce Willis in it, yes. right? Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's just um, lovely. It's just it's got edge because he's a um, he's not the nicest person, and um, but it's got a it's just really. Kind of nice. Is it? Um, I think it's Richard Russo. I'm just double checking, but it's a great American novelist that oh. they've ad- adapted. And so I think there is, yeah, there's a lot of grit in the um, script. And um, But yeah, no, I saw that when it came out, and I remember 
enjoying it. Um, I, I mean, he's an yeah, he's Richard the Russo. sort of yeah. asshole who um, uh, leaves his wife and then moves to a, um, a, a a house across the road. Yeah, it's he's he's <laughs> he's, a and he's trying to yeah. he's trying to uh, reconnect with his son, but that's damaging his relationship with. Uh, with someone he works with who's uh, his best friend. And so there's it's just like lots of little interpersonal stuff. But it, Paul Newman is just fantastic. The performance is right across the board. Mm. Bruce Willis in, in a very small, very not that significant role. But he, he does a good job with it. Yeah. At, at a time where we thought Bruce Willis' career might go in another yeah. direction and ultimately mm. did. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, I'm going to do something controversial and Ooh. use my chance to talk about one film to only talk about one film. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, hit it. And um, not only that, it's going to be a very s- short one. Uh, well, so when nice I, for the listener. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I went over to the States in July, I had... Um, a backlog at my brother's house of um, almost two and a half years worth of Blu-rays on various specials that oh, I've ordered. Them. <laughs> yes, I, and I will now list each one and every movie that I got around to watching off them. Um, and so uh, one of them from Kino Lorber was the Ken Jacobs collection. Ken Jacobs is an avant-garde perfume? filmmaker who's been around for 50-plus uh, years. Um, people might know... Better his son is Azel Jacobs, who made French Exit a couple years oh, ago, okay. um, which is a much more traditional narrative one. Um, I discovered Ken Jacobs. He, there's always a name that came up, but I went to the a New York Film Festival's Views from the Avant Garde in 2010, and he had a short film called Seeking the Monkey King with um, music by J.G. Thurwell, who's from Fetus and has also more famously done the, for probably our listeners, done the music for. Uh, Venture Brothers and Archer, and and it's a very polymath kind of thing. And so this intense um, kind of percussive uh, music. And he somehow, I'm pretty sure the film largely consists of shots of aluminum foil that are edited together. And you watch it without any 3D glasses on, but the way he edits it together really creates this 3D effect. And so he did this, and he combined it with political quotes and stuff. And so it was a really, like, explicitly political film, but also playing with this, like, brain-breaking, like, your eyes watching something that's ostensibly a two-dimensional film, but coming out out at you in ways that I was not familiar with. And and I couldn't understand. I loved it, but I've never been able to see it again. Uh, And so I picked up the Ken Jacobs collection, and while I was waiting for it to show up, I noticed that I had another Ken Jacobs film on a thing, and I wa- it was a 70s film, I watched it, called Little Stabs of Happiness. It was terrible. So <laughs> so Ken Jacobs' collection has just been sitting there, and the other night I'm like, let me just grab something off this. Um, I'll pick a short film off this, just <laughs> regardless of whether or not I like it. If it's suffering, at least it'll be short-suffering. And so I picked a film called Capitalism Child Labor. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, yeah, because I figured, you know, what really summarizes the Christmas spirit better when you think about that sweatshop up north with all of these small people who are being forced to work. Um, and so capitalism, child labor, uh, one of Jacob's later things is not using footage that he shot at all, but actually 
uh, either film that he's discovered or, in fact, still images. And so this is a still image of a factory uh, that goes on for a while, and there's a few people in the front of it, and you notice immediately when you look at the image, you notice this one child who's standing in, who's like nine years old, holding, I can't remember even what it is, uh, but some example of what the factory makes, I think. And um, and so it uses this technique for about 14 minutes of flashing this image, so it's like somehow intensely creating this three-dimensional version of it, and then slightly playing with it more so you feel like you're moving through it. And then it starts playing with this actually bringing up details from the image so that you're inside it. And um, and I should note the capitalism child labor uh, is called that in part because there's also another film called Capitalism Slavery, which uses uh-huh. a picture of... And, and both of the and the slavery one explicitly identifies itself as being from a commercially produced stereoscopic image that was created. Like back in the day, you could get um, kind of like those viewmasters. Yeah, you have the, one, one, yep. one image on this side, one image on the other side. And so with that one, he's just done that and zoomed in on various aspects of it and be like, not only was capitalism unembarrassed of slavery, but it was fucking selling images of how cool slavery was as a capitalist object. Um, Capitalism child labor is, though, is at a very next level in terms of craft. Um, And I've noticed that it's on YouTube. I don't know what it would be like to watch it in that aspect. But it it just, I think it's definitely um, a body of work that I'm just starting to tap into. I don't really um, understand how it all fits together from, or even if it does, or if he's had just sort of back and forths, there's a recent film that he's made that's all all digital, and he was very early on, assuming with a lot of the digital editing stuff. And there's a film called Film That Invites Pausing, which uses these to even more intense brain breaking effects. But um, even if capitalism, child labor, was had no political content, it was a photo of something else. It would still have been one of my like just as a visual piece of overwhelm of like how are you doing that and how is this image coming out of my television? It would have been one of my films of the year. And then for it to also advance what I think are actually several political arguments beyond the obvious one, um, that it's a picture of child labor, (laughs) um, without ever using a single word in its whole running time. Um, capitalism slavery doesn't have a soundtrack, whereas this has a very interesting, dense, droney soundtrack, but again, with no words or narration or contextualization. And, and um, that's a full 80-minute film, is it? Or? It's 14 minutes. No, no, I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully by the time we next convene, I'll have got around to watching the extra on um, the Lux Eterna Blu-ray, which was also in the States waiting for me. And they have Tony Conrad's The Flicker on that, which is a feature length of only black or white and that's the only thing you get. And it's uh, famous for its um, uh, transformational hypnagogic Ooh, wow. effects. I've seen a little clip of it in the Tony Conrad documentary that played the film festival a few years ago. And it's a big... Uh, have either of you guys watched Lux Eterna? No. no. Some, sometime when we have darkness, we'll do that. And the last 11 or 12 minutes of Lux Eterna are a riff on the flicker where it um, uses RGB screens. Uh, and, and the idea is this um, Lux Eterna is about this film that's being made with the, this actress and uh, 
and it's, things are going very badly and all of that. And there are three witches that are supposed to be being burned and they have video screens behind them. And at a certain point, the video screens malfunction and just start flashing RGB. And then the film just becomes, then it becomes this kind of 2001 A Space Odyssey oh. trip yeah, to the end. It's on Shutter America at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what it would be like with streaming. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, like how much the compression would affect it or not. But I saw it at Cannes on opening night and everybody was expecting a Gaspar Noe provocation. And it's very... I'm pretty sure that you could show it to, well, this doesn't really mean much given what you show Aiden, yep. but I'm pretty sure you could show it to Aiden without having yeah. child services exactly, come over. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, Not a lot and, of Gaspers output would actually fall under that category. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's, 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 a stunning, um, it's a stunning film for lots of different reasons that I don't want to spoil. Um, it definitely has its pretentious aspects to it because it's Gaspar Noe <laughs> and it's pro- provocative aspects because it's Gaspar Noe <laughs> yeah. but um, yeah that ending 12 minute screen in a big can cinema um, just bombarding people and it's not that full so, length feature no it's only like 50 no, it's minutes, 50, 50, 58 50 minutes, minutes or something yeah, minutes, yeah. yeah. so yeah. yeah so there's no way we can make an easy segue out of that not oh. really <laughs> <laughs> but um, we've basically talked about a bunch of films that have as much to do with Christmas as these three films, <laughs> exactly. haven't we? These three movies that appear on Christmas movie lists that actually have nothing to do with Christmas. And we're going to start off, what, least Christmassy to most Christmassy? I, I think, I think well, the, we can the start with the least Christmassy, which I think I said to um, Darren, makes Die Hard look like a telling of the nativity story where Santa's <laughs> one of the midwives. I mean, Christmas factor in this one is, it's it's December. <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> but it all goes down. It's or, or it all finishes. It ends on, on Christmas Eve, but they have time. Yeah, twenty fourth. Yeah, it is twenty fourth, five p.m. It's a Christmas oh, Eve movie. It doesn't yeah. even reach Christmas. the people who survive have time to do their Christmas shopping. Exactly. You know, maybe maybe two hours. Maybe not in the seventies. So we should say what the movie maybe is. Maybe we're talking about is the Legend of Hell House, uh, nineteen seventy three, directed by John Huff, and this one is. Adapted from a novel, a 1971 novel by Richard Matheson. And Richard Matheson uh, is probably one of those names that I've probably really read, but I know from so many different things. American author and screenwriter, uh, born in in 1926, died in 2013. And this morning I actually found a a little interview, well, like a 45-minute interview, which must have only been a few months before his death which was quite interesting, gave me a nice little background on some of his uh, early days. Uh, he uh, was born in New Jersey and uh, attended a college in uh, Brooklyn, of all places, but uh, didn't actually study literature because he didn't think at the time that there was any money to be made in it. He was writing poems and things and submitting them to uh, a newspaper called the Brooklyn Eagle, which was publishing them by the time he was eight years old. Uh, but by the time he was eight? By the time he was eight, he was writing wow. poems and getting them published, just in like the kids' you know, poetry corner mm-hmm. style of thing. He wrote his first novel at 14, but he never submitted it because he didn't know that there was you could actually make money on that and had, didn't think that was going to ever happen. So uh, his his break really started when he wrote a... He, he said he, his first uh, big idea that he could write was he submitted a, a short story to one of the... 1950s sci-fi magazines which were of course huge at the time and not only did they publish it they paid him for it so he suddenly went well maybe I can do this and then proceeded to write a novel called The Shrinking Man 
and made the most probably the smartest decision I've heard from a, a writer where he showed it to his his um, agent and his agent went if I publish this uh, I will my reputation will be shot so he fired his agent and he got another <laughs> agent and they immediately sold it to Universal Studios <laughs> and put in in the contract that I have to write the screenplay <laughs> and wow. to be perfectly honest, off to the races because Richard Matheson after that is a laundry list of amazing things. Um, Culminating in Real Steel. Yeah, Real Steel. Which is which, actually a really good film. One I've been meaning to watch for a long time because I've, I've known that it's quite a, a good film and it's just you know been on the radar for a long time. But, of course, back in the 50s, um, the Twilight Zone was where you found Richard Matheson. He was probably... He thinks he was the second most used mm. writer in there. Um, he did 14 scripts. Uh, and a lot of them have been adapted... Even since then, I mean, he wrote Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet. He wrote Button Button, um, mm. and his his Internet Movie Database. If you look down at his list of of credits, is fantastic because so many great flicks in there. We talked about The Incredible Shrinking Man last time around, yes. and that is just such an, an intelligent script. Mm-hmm. And yeah, knocked it out of the park with that one. But once he started going into writing for TV, his own short stories because he was incredibly prolific on the short stories became the big thing so most of the short stories uh, were adapted into um, into Twilight Zone episodes he also wrote for um, AIP for the uh, adaptions of House of Usher The Pit and the Pendulum were all his screenplays uh, some of the early um, Samuel Z. Arkoff and uh, James H. Nicholson productions which gave us a nice connection because James H. Nicholson <laughs> actually produced Legend of Hell House. It was right. one of his only two American, or only two English films when he came over from America after AIP split up, and unfortunately died of a, a brain um, brain cancer fairly soon after moving to America. So he never got to do anything else. But Jack Nicholson himself was uh, involved in this because The Raven and Comedy of Terrors uh, were two oh, right. of his uh, later screenplay adaptions. And then 1964. The Last Man on Earth, which was adapted mm-hmm. from uh, his novel uh, I Am Legend, which would be an amazing... I, th- I thought it would be an amazing three movies to put together as three adaptions of I Am Legend with three different names and three different actors, <laughs> only to find out that I was wrong about the three different adaptions. There's four, because The Asylum put out the mockbuster of I Am Legend called I Am Omega six months before Will Smith's right. version <laughs> came out. So. Oh, my Lord. But it's a great trifecta of actors. I mean, you've got, you know... Uh, Vincent Price, Price, of course. Yeah. You've got Charlton Heston out of his right, cold the Omega dead, Man, uh, out of my cold dead hands, you zombie bastards. Mm-hmm. And then you got Will Smith. So I mean, that's the same character being played by three very, very different oh, actors. Actually, yeah. I think they're very much the same. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe these days. I mean, these, you know, Vincent Wilson's... Price and Will Smith. You actually can't tell them apart. <laughs> I can't split those two up. Man, Charlton Heston dropped some fresh rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> And his career went all the way through into the 90s, including, oddly enough, the screenplay for Jaws 3D was a Richard Matheson joint. And that might just about drop my iPod on the floor when we read that. It was like, you're The original, me. not the one they shot? Or? Mm, no, but they, he wrote the screen. He's credited as a screenplay oh for, for Jaws well, 3D. Oh, that's a shame. As, as we all know, what the screenplay is and what shows up on screen are, mm, can, are it can be things, anything from full well, fidelity to fully coincidental. Which is why I asked if that was what they shot. <laughs> 
Oh, enough. A little Can't. aside, the I Am Omega uh, lead man that is not Vincent Price, Will Smith, or Charlton Heston was Mark DeCascos. So, um. oh, <laughs> Iron Chef this week, Petito! <laughs> That's the guy. But uh, going. And, and Drive. Yes. And Drive, yeah. But, Which uh, I picked up on 4K. Yes, I've heard. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, Drive is phenomenal, as we've talked about at length on this podcast. But 1971, he wrote a novel called Hell House, which has been adopted, he adopted and the screenplay into The Legend of Hell House. And I did my research in this one. I actually went and found Stayed on... in the, Hell House. No, yeah, well, I definitely would have done it if I could, but then you'd be doing a two-handed podcast because I'd be dead. Yeah. Um, well, we wanted to talk to you about something. <laughs> So um, I did the research. I went and um, found on the archive.org. They actually have a copy of there you can borrow. And I read a bit of, um, just skimmed through Hell House, and it's very pulpy. It's, it's Compared to what we actually saw on screen, he dials up the, the sex and the violence quite substantially. Right, okay. So ah. it, it definitely, in the early 1970s, would have sold pretty well. He's kind of, you know, he's, he's very much at the opening scenes are... Very, very similar. Very much he's written directly from that novel for the screenplay. And it's diverted a little bit further in, probably because the British censors would have had 47 heart attacks in a scene where one of the female leads has to strip and examine for three and a half pages the other female lead. Right. So he definitely had a target audience who's going for a lot of BDSM in there as well. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, he was he was definitely ahead of his time on that one. Uh, shades of uh, shades of grey, shall we say. <laughs> But the film itself is uh, stars... Well, I'll just bring my little list up again. I'm on Richard Matheson. Apologies for this. My usual preparation. I've got it on six different uh, screens. New so Zealander for five minutes. That's the one. Uh, New Zealand for five minutes, Clive Revel. Uh, although Pamela Franklin, uh, Franklin actually gets top billing on this one, which is good to see. Uh, Roddy McDowell and Gail Honeycutt. And then there's two other actors, because there's literally six actors in this movie and one of them is Peter Bowles for about three yep. minutes and the other you hear his voice um, on a record at the beginning and then you discover him and um, yeah Michael Goff Michael Goff <laughs> Michael yeah. Goff yes Alfred from the Batman movies yes yeah so he's uh, in this as well but the plot is it's very similar uh, if you you look back at the 1963 movie The Haunting you're going to find a lot of correlation because this is four paranormal investigators well paranormal investigator and mediums and psychics being yeah. sent to investigate Hell House one a survivor of a previous previous one exactly Mark Medell was there 20 years before as a 15 year old and they're sent there by an aging multi-multi-million millionaire obviously because he lives in a house that looks pretty much like the British Museum has now got a, a living visitor uh, so phenomenal houses that they found yeah. apparently the, the Hell House itself was um, was out by Gatwick Airport of all places <laughs> But it's just phenomenal. They did say that we, on the a little um, make-up I found online that he got very lucky because when he got there, there was no wind and the fog was up there and they just quickly set the cameras up, got those shots right. on the outside. He said if the, if the wind had been blowing, it would look terrible because the house is around. But instead, it becomes this amazing, isolated, fog-shrouded house, which really sets the tone for the movie. And then if the, um, the, he did also say he looked at The Haunting for a bit of inspiration, which was adapted from Shirley Jackson's The Legend of Hill House, which is unconnected, but right. um, feels like Richard Matheson did have a bit of influence from in that as well, because, I mean, this was eight years later that he wrote the novel. Uh, uh, kind of when we started talking about this, it confused me, because in my head I conflate the uh, Legend of Hell House, the Haunting of Hell House, and the House on Haunted Hill right. all become one kind of mm-hmm. 1960s, 70s 
combination in my head. So I can't actually even remember if I've seen this movie before. It felt oh, familiar. Have. I've seen it I at have. your house. Okay, we had seen it. Yeah, sometime. we did yeah. it. Um, I played it at the one of our first birthday marathons. Oh, so we're going back sometime. We are. We're going back a decade. So that was when you saw it. And since then, I've seen both uh, the haunting and the uh, house on haunted hill. And so, as yeah. I say, when I started watching, I'm like, it feels familiar, but I'm not yeah. quite sure if I have. Mm. And the uh, the main plot is that you have Cloverville playing a doctor who's. A paranormal investigator, but also you can tell a dyed-in-the-wall skeptic. He, yeah. He's found no evidence of ghosts. Mm. And he's been sent into a house with a medium who's very much believes and is very deeply spiritual. A very broken medium and mm. Roddy McDowell. And I can only use the word, and I'm going to have to say it, haunted is his performance mm. because he... The most restrained... At least for the first half of the movie, one of his most restrained performances. He can't, it doesn't stay restrained. No. But, hey, but he, the director must have just been saying, don't worry, in the second half, Roddy, you'll get to do that. You'll get, you'll get, you'll get to shout at the camera. You, you, you'll can, go, you can go full McDowell. But I think it's an excellent performance at the start because he really... You can feel that, mm. yes. that pain from 20 years before and the fact that out of all four of them... He doesn't want to be there. Mm. No way does he want mm. to be there. The hundred thousand pounds he's getting paid almost certainly would get him there, but he does not want to be there because he was there with, I think he said twenty-seven people out of twenty-eight died in the last two times that people yeah. went into Hell House, supposedly the most haunted house in England. This original story was set in, I think, New England, and um, so but so this is a an English version. I think it actually, for me, really works nicely as an English one because of that that very set driven mm. production that they do in England and it feels so British because it it's yeah. so restrained and it's I mean there's this heavy pall mm. over it yeah for the whole film but it does it has that sort of sense of British staticness it's not in a hurry to move no. anywhere in particular it takes its time and the and it's very process driven yeah. that's what, something I really enjoyed about mm. It is is that it's just there is such a methodical nature to it uh, that it just lets its gears grind mm. very slowly, so yeah. that when things break, you feel it in a yeah. really shattering and sense. And it's out of it is very English. And when, then when the the ghosts start to manifest themselves as poltergeist, and literally uh, the uh, uh, I forget the character name. I always forget the character name. Pamela Franklin Franklin's character, who yeah. is the the very spiritual medium is basically like, oh, very funny, go away. It's it's one of the most English things I've seen. Okay, <laughs> things are flying off your bed, and it's just like you're being a nuisance now. Go go off, go and go somewhere else. And go then, and think about what you've done. This is and that's literally her character in the book as well. I mean, I read mm. the, the novel. She's very much. I mean, in the the first scenes in the there where she's by herself, the ghost of the son of the the, the Lord of the Manor pinches her on the ass, and she right. simply says, oh, go away, and then doesn't even look around as the door opens and closes behind her. <laughs> Which is, I mean, most people, you know, a ghost turns up and pinches you on the ass, you're like, nice house, can't stay, bye. <laughs> and you're out of there before Christmas Day even arrives. But uh, the, the the atmosphere is what really gets me on this one, yeah. because you can, you know, the moment you get in there, you know this place is haunted. And you've even though you've got a skeptic there who's going to be bringing in his machine to try and electronically exercise the house, you know that this shit is going to go down, but it, it creeps towards it, which it really reminds me of The Haunting. The Haunting right. has got such an amazing atmosphere that things happen, but there's the things you think are happening that are scarier than the things that are happening on yes. screen. It's not a special effects extravaganza. As I say, they had no budget to do big special effects. They didn't want to do big special effects. They wanted things that were practical mm. and creepy. And brilliantly, this is 40 years later when this 
making up documentaries made, he wouldn't explain how he did some of the special effects. Right. He said the special effects where there's a, an obviously a figure in the bed, and then in one mm. shot she pulls away yes. the, the sheet and there's nothing there but a yeah. pillow. And it's all in shot. It's all in shot, all in one shot. And he said, I'm, I'm very proud of that shot, and I won't tell you how I did it. So yeah. people still ask me how I do that, but he won't tell. He's, he, it feels like he's doing a magic show. Right. And he's, he does it so well. The big thing I think that gives the atmosphere is that while the exterior of the house was a, a true house, everything else was shot on large sets. And he said he wanted a big set because he wanted his camera to move. He yes. always wanted Keep moving. Keeping fluid. Keeping it fluid and also giving you the impression that is this camera moving just because we're moving around mm. or are we the presence following around, which is where some of those beautiful shots where the characters are off in the distance in a huge room and we're gently drifting yes. yeah. on the far end of it. You you definitely feel like there is something in that house before they even start with the spooky noises and you know the poltergeist activity, and it it just starts to crank that tension up. So as you can tell, I, I really have enjoyed this movie. I was mm. I, I, enjoy, I probably enjoyed it the first time. I really enjoyed it this time around. I and I mean we I think we can go into spoiler territory here. I mean the 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 reveal that a lot of the the ghost is fueled by Napoleon syndrome. Mm. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's short man, um, short man syndrome. He, it's even in his uh, walled up dead husk. He's uh, he's basically grafted on stilts. Yeah, or that he's, he was the lord of the manor, but he was probably you know five foot tall. And the anger that he had in, of that in his lifetime is after his death continued and basically harnessed. It feels. I mean, for a long time, it feels like there is multiple ghosts, and then at the end of it, spoiler joint, it comes down to it is just the Lord of the Manor pretending to be people. And there is a a scene where the the, the medium tries to let the son, the ghost of the son that she thinks is in the house, be free, burying his corpse, and then when he's still alive, when he's, he's still around, allowing him to have sex with her, ghost sex, to to be free. <laughs> and that's the big crunch moment because it turns out it's not the son. It's the Lord of the Manor. Right. He's not trying to escape. He's trying to fuck shit up, basically. And the, mm. the, the, the performance as she goes from this fully spiritual woman yeah. to whiplashing back to suddenly possessed by the Lord of the Manor is fantastic. The absolute com- commitment of all these performances is such a huge thing because there's so many horror movies where you get um, moments where there's either the actors either feel a bit beneath it or that there's a bit of knowingness or something. But, you know, um, as with that other ghost story we discussed, Muppet Christmas Carol, yep. the performances <laughs> here are, are just fully buying into the reality of it mm. at all the time. And so that that just... Yeah, interestingly, I just looked up John Hoke because I didn't um, know his background. And the next movie he did after this was Dirty Mary, Crazy, Crazy Larry, Larry. yeah. Which... Oh, wow. um, and he and he's got quite a diverse. Yeah, he got uh, he got picked up by Disney after yeah. they they saw Hell House while he was yeah. doing Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. They picked him up to do Escape from Witch Mountain and Return to Witch Mountain. And wow. Escape from Witch Mountain, one of my favorite movies as a kid. Right, I haven't revisited those, and I barely remember them. But the I think it's uh, it's telling that even though he's got this, as, as you were talking about with the camera, he's got this ostensibly very static setup, you know, it's like I was riffing on COVID movies before and this, you know, essentially could be a COVID mm, yeah. movie. You, know, you have four people in a house, you even have proper like kind of social distancing in half the <laughs> yeah. sense because the house is so big. So big yep. And yet it never gets 
static or dull because he's always finding places to put the camera, always he's, moving the camera. He said his cameramen love to just pick up the camera and run around with it. So he said there's a lot more handheld than you'd expect in a movie from the 70s. And his cameraman at times would just... I mean, some of the, the effects of you know where the cameras were swirling, they were basically yeah. improvising some of these ones on the set, things they hadn't done before. But he said he he talks at length about a cinematographer about how he would love to just put the camera on there and then move. And as he said, the other thing, big thing he said was with the performances. He he was he said he was never a person to start directing by saying you're doing this, this, and this. He would do his take with his actors as they saw the character and then tweak from there. So by the time they were out on set, everyone actor of course has an idea of what their character is. Mm. And when you got characters, like, you know, actors like Roddy McDowell, mm. who were oh. that serious, that good an actor. You can sometimes just feed off that and then allow them. And you said the biggest thing for him was that the cast got on so well mm. that it was the chemistry was there. Well, so, I've, I've yeah. heard stories that Roddy McDowell was just one of those nicest people in show business. Oh, yeah. I mean, he'd been acting since he was about four or five years old and Lassie Come Home or something, one of those. So, uh, yeah, and he's just... He's tremendous, and he doesn't manage to be the whole show, which is so often the case with a Roddy McDowell performance. Clive Rivell plays a pompous asshole um, (laughs) professor, uh, scientist person so well, and uh, he started off life in in New Zealand for a very short time, I think. I don't think he ever acted in New Zealand. I'm not Um, too sure, actually, but I I don't think so. I think he was... Born New Zealand, but I think yeah, he, I don't. Th- yeah, I on. think he moved when he was about thirteen or fourteen. But I mean, we're New Zealand. We 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 will just own whoever is. <laughs> just the Pavlova, you know. Yeah, the Pavlova, but a veteran of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, so, mm. and he became America's favorite Brit in, during the eighties. He was just one of those people who was always just trotted out to play a, a British person in every sitcom, every drama, yeah. and. Was the original voice of the Emperor in uh, Empire Strikes yes, Back? Yes, that so, is true. I mean, you know, when you got that voice, is is fantastic, and he, he he does have a great presence in this movie that you can you know, especially when it's you can see that the his the walls of his own was his own sort of perceptions about what's yes. actually out there breaking down, mm. and the house beginning to fight back against him, and his relationship with his wife becomes mm. a nice pivotal part of the film too, and it's yeah. just. There's yeah, there's a lot going on in, in a film that is essentially a yeah. forehand. And, the, and then the, the novel goes further into the the kind of the house possessing his wife and making her you know his slightly Sexy. sexually repressed wife becoming yeah a lot more overt. Even with Mind him, there's even a scene in there scene... where she's trying to seduce him, yeah. and basically and for removing for you know you think oh, the seventies, early seventies, it's not that one, but she literally just says, "Why are you afraid of me? I want to fuck." And it's basically wow, it is. Very direct. I mean, that scene with her and Roddy McDowell just feels so sexually charged. Yeah. It's just. Mm. Because they were under the mistletoe. That's what <laughs> makes it a Christmas film. <laughs> <laughs> I have to you say. nailed it. I have to <laughs> say that uh, uh, having watched this twice, it was slightly marred for me this viewing only because. You knew that. I thought, no, because I thought it was supposed to be a Christmas film. And I'm just looking for evidence the entire time. <laughs> and I'm just like, Sorry, I there's cobwebs? You. Maybe those are supposed to be tinsel. <laughs> and I, I recently mentioned this on another internet thread somewhere, and somebody's like, 
was like, what? I've seen Legend of Hell House four times, and I never no, thought it was a Christmas. Literally, so. it starts like, on well, the, the, the same by the, the 20th, and it ends on December 24th, and it gives that 5 p.m. And it shows the times as it goes along. And which, the fascinating thing is it's They so, already had done their Christmas shopping. And it yeah. so <laughs> sets, up, sets it up for an unhappy ending. It feels like everything is just going to hell. No one's going to... Quite literally. And, yeah. I mean, and it doesn't really feel like a happy ending. It just feels like there are some survivors... Mm. But it's but it doesn't even feel like it was going that way. It just feels like a typical seventies horror, and they all die. Oh well. Yeah. But it is it much? is a trick as well when you only have four people. It's like yes. you can't really do you can't a body off. count you movie. Yeah. You know, no, especially no. like you you're not counting for very long anyway. Yeah. So. What what stands out for me in the atmosphere wise is the music. Yes, because the music is it's an electronic score that basically even though you can't really. Pick it's up on used it. sparingly. It, it, yeah, and it incorporates real noise in there and real sounds in it, like yeah. bells and, and, and words apparently, which are then electronically treated into a score. And it's, yeah, when you get that score, it, it raises a hackle on the back of your neck at mm. times because it is, it's used in the right times. It's, it's very much a, uh, the sum of its parts is, is fantastic because yes. it's, it's a tiny, obviously a tiny budgeted sort of movie, mm. but Atmosphere for everything days. works together. The, yeah. the script is fantastic, the performances are believable, the soundtrack, and then the production design because, I mean, you that house, you feel like you could get lost in that just watching it. And mm. apparently, he did say that the original house, that when they looked in it to see if they could shoot in it, huge house, tiny rooms. So there was no way they were going to shoot on an actual house there. They needed something that had the space to let that story breathe and to to basically make you feel kind of almost once again claustrophobic in a house with very big rooms, which is a mm. weird trick to do. Incidentally, the three composers, uh, Delia Derbyshire, Brian Hodgson, and Dudley Simpson, were oh, all members. Was a fourth one, a, a decomposer. <laughs> hey. Oh, get out. <laughs> um. <laughs> We're here all week, whether you like it or not. <laughs> I have um, no shame. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we, um, we're all members of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which was an in-house uh, mm. unit at the yep. BBC yes. that, amongst other things, is famous for the original sound effects for this uh, for Doctor Who. Yes, yep. very and much. So they'll so. have been at the cutting edge of oh, yeah. that kind of um, mm. computer and synth-driven stuff for quite a while. And yeah, um, yeah it's um, and it, you can tell because there are. In the 60s and 70s, there are quite a few films that experiment with electronics in their soundtrack, and some of them have dated very badly because they're just kind of like got someone who's dicking around with a piece of equipment yeah. and like, well, this sounds interesting. We'll use some of that. And now it just sounds like bleep, 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 bleep. There's <laughs> <laughs> um, a bit of that, but it's, I, I think the fact that it's used sparingly enough, it, it never becomes yeah. like, you, you, you know, there's no big stings for jump scares and things it's it's there just to keep you on that edge you see just keep it creepy yeah which it works really well and it also it also helps dissociate it from like the hammer the kind of the classical kind of gothic style that you get in a lot of yeah. haunted house tellings where even though you know the haunting is technically of the past it's very present tense and mm. All that sort of way. So yeah, yeah I, love, I, think, I love Hammer films that I can't really listen to the soundtracks just by themselves because they have to have the visuals. Otherwise, they're yeah. just a little OTT at times. Uh, Understandable. I always need to stop for a little Hammer time myself. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think we can all agree we all really enjoyed that one. Exactly, and it's, it's as I say, not a Christmas movie, but, you know, if you watch it around Christmas, you know, before you go Christmas shopping, then, you know, nothing, you will fear nothing again when you get in the shopping mall. <laughs> and uh, extras for experts, if you do want to see a unrestrained Roddy McDowell horror <laughs> performance, you cannot go past it. 1967. I have a feeling oh, we have watched I think it we have here. Watched it's a yes. uh, a golem. Yes, movie we definitely have seen that one. Yes. With um, Roddy McDowell controlling the golem and and eating every tiny piece of scenery. Oh yeah, there's, there's uh, a lot of Roddy in that one. It <laughs> yeah. is um, full McDowell. It's tremendous. <laughs> um, so yeah, if you can find it, watch it. Hey! All right, right. Moving on. All right. So let's get Christmas. Christmas a year. Our next Christmas movie is actually two movies, um, both of which are directed by Sylvester Stallone. One is called Rocky Four, and one is called Rocky versus Drago. So um, I won't go. You guys might have heard of this guy, Sylvester Stallone, so I won't <laughs> go too much into that, other than to note that um, Quentin Tarantino's uh, new book, Cinema Speculation, uh, has a great chapter on Paradise Alley, which is oh. uh, his, uh, Stallone's directorial debut, and uh, after he uh, tried to get Rocky made, he uh, initially uh, he wrote Paradise Alley, uh, but when Rocky got... Uh, he managed to sell Rocky... Uh, he had Paradise Alley. He got to direct, and then off the back of that, he directed Rocky Two, Rocky Three, Staying Alive, and then Rocky Four, um, which is the film where uh, he takes on Ivan Drago after the Soviet uh, punching killing machine kills his mentor Apollo Creed in the ring. Montages ensue. The yeah. end. Um, <laughs> so. There's, it's famous mostly for that, for being an encapsulation of Cold War America. It's interesting watching it this time to think about the fact of, like, how could the Russians have a boxer that came from nowhere when it had been in the Olympics? It's like, oh, yeah, no, it's that 84 boycott. 84 boycott. So mm-hmm. Five, five boycott. years, you know. And they that literally did make not make the professional boxers, a boxing professional yeah. one. It's also famous for um, being the sequel that includes uh, Robot Butler, which was widely mocked at the time, but um, <laughs> less known is that that robot was written into the movie because it was used to help uh, treat Stallone's autistic son, Sergio. And um, oh. so he was quite close with uh, the makers of the robot, which I'll get back to when we talk about this recut that happened. Um, at the time, the reception of Rocky IV was Rocky. critically it was in fact Rocky to a quote, <laughs> to get some um, quotes from um, Roger Ebert's two star review um, Rocky Four is a last gasp a film so predictable that viewing it is like watching one of those old sitcoms where the characters never change and the same situations turn up again and again it's tempting to forget how good the original Rocky was back in 1976. It was a fresh, wonderful film, and we met real people, quirky, lovable characters, on the way to the final fight scene. The next two Rocky pictures lost some of those qualities, but were still superior entertainments. I'm, par- I'm taking quite a bit out of the longer review, but you're all encouraged to read it if you want to know. But now with Rocky IV, almost all of the human emotions have been drained out of the series, and what's left is technology. Stallone assembles and photographs two fight scenes, the first always a loss, the second always a victory, and links them together with perfunctory drama. Even the colorful dialogue is missing this time, re- replaced with endless unnecessary songs on the soundtrack. Half the time we seem to be watching MTV. 
Rocky Four is movie making by the numbers. Stallone says this will be the last Rocky movie. He should have taken Rocky Marciano as an example and retired undefeated. Ooh, well, yeah, that is, that's a TKO I mean, of a review. The, yeah, the, <laughs> The fourth one is really a slice of cheese, isn't it? It's a, you've seen it. It's it's a it's a triple decker yeah. slice of cheese, yeah, yes. on ham, yeah. <laughs> and and despite any health considerations about that ham on cheese, uh, it's a it's a popular favorite. Oh, and massive. so the box office success was three hundred million worldwide, and it was the highest grossing sports film for two and a half decades until two thousand nine's The oh, Blind it's, Side. It's got a lot of fans, States. and I'm going to piss people yeah. off shortly, but that's all right. Oh, you and me both. So that um, that led to a 21-year break in Stallone's directing career. He did write a few scripts over that time, including Cobra, Over the Top, Rambo 3, Rocky V, Cliffhanger Driven. Rocky V, incidentally, directed by John Avildsen, who directed the initial film, as well as uh, long-time, remembers, well, long-time listeners will remember Joe, which we talked about oh, in Dog's Age Ago. Um, and then in 2006, he dusted off the character and came back with Rocky Balboa, which he directed, and then he directed Rambo, and then The Expendables. Uh, and that's, to this point, I think that's the last film that Stallone's directed. Um, but something seems to have been nagging at him since 1985. <laughs> and Touching so, George fast, forward, fast yeah. forward to March 2020... And he's filming a film called Samaritan, which is some superhero film on Amazon Prime that eventually came out and nobody really cared about. Um, and thing, and suddenly he can't work on it because of COVID. Uh, so he's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to make a film about two people having um, marital <laughs> difficulties in a shack? No, I'm going to recut Rocky IV. Okie doke. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and so we now have what's called Rocky versus Drago. Um, which has 38 minutes of newer replacement footage. It's basically the same running length. I think one's 91 minutes and the other one's 93 mm. minutes. Um, Out goes the robot butler. Yes. So um, Seiko is now gone. Uh, Empire Magazine got to the bottom of this. And I want to quote this because it's misrepresented in the Wikipedia article. Um, the Wikipedia article is like, he cut the robot butler out because he didn't want to pay royalties. Okay. Uh, it's like, really? And um, the quote from... Um, the founder of International Robotics, Robert Dornick, is, I was in my office when I found out. I was deluged with messages. How can Stallone do that? But I know he's why he's doing it, because I know he loves the robot. By causing turmoil among the fans of Seiko, it generates more publicity. Mm-hmm. And by removing the robot from the movie, it saves money and royalty fees. Because he is a member of the Screen Actors Guild, Seiko <laughs> receives checks all the time. And of course, he sends them over to me. To me, it's pretty clear the second half of that is a bit tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, I don't yeah. think that no. that's the reason. But if you look on Wikipedia, it's like, he wanted to save royalties, so he cut the... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm pretty sure the 45 cents a year that he was getting on. Yeah. I, I, I have a feeling it's like, I don't know if you've heard about this whole thing with James Cameron commissioning a scientific study to prove that only one person could have survived floating on the door in Titanic. Um, because he's no, taken so much. Yeah, he, he actually commissioned a study because he was wow. sick of getting stick about like <laughs> wow. the fact that you know Rose could have saved them both and let him <laughs> drown and Jack drown. Um, so I have a feeling Stallone's like similarly thin-skinned about the robot. Right. Um, speaking of thin skin, one character who gets 
uh, cut out quite a bit as well in the recut as Bridget Nielsen's to the point where it, it feels like she could be played by Poochie and uh, oh, okay. The Simpsons. And then but suddenly by ex-wife. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, which yep. is what happens when you have an affair with Schwarzenegger while shooting Red Sonia at the same time yep. and get divorced. Um, so Actually, it, I wouldn't know. <laughs> well, you know, you're I haven't had an affair with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, no. you're missing out. Well, you Seriously. know, you know, <laughs> you, it, life's not over yet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's so much to say about the making of this. A lot of which is covered in a 93-minute documentary on YouTube. Oh. So his old friend John Herzfeld, who had directed um, Stallone and Escape Plan to the Extractors, and um, but goes the way, all the way back to him to being on screen with him during Cobra, um, decided to show up at the edit suite with him with an iPhone. And so it's basically 93 minutes of Stallone oh, talking about wow. everything about uh, how this recut came to be you know him seeing watching him see takes for the first time he's never seen what he um, to all these things it? what what fail what he wants to go back and do one thing he confesses so we've already mentioned apollo creed's death in this film mm. he's like i never if i had to go back i wouldn't kill creed I, no. it, I was a mistake. It was dumb. I thought there had to be bigger stakes. Mm. If we had put him in a wheelchair, it would have given the character some place to yep. go. He would have been humbled. It would have been a lot more interesting. Um, and so that's what Rocky versus Drago in a larger sense is, is to try to correct a film that has a lot of fundamental problems that can't be corrected. And there is um, a, there's a lot more Apollo Creed. There's a lot more lead up to the, um, to the, to the bout at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And so we're in a strange situation here because Skeets watched the original. Mm. You've oh, watched the remake. Yep. I watched the original heaps when I was growing up on yeah. TV, but I hadn't seen it for like 30 well, years. I and watched I the original because I've never seen a Rocky sequel. I've only seen the original. Wow. I have never seen any Hush of the, the original sequels. I've never seen any of the reboot, re, you know. Have you the, not the Creed. seen Creed? I have not seen Creed, no. Oh, or wow. Creed 2? No. I, yeah, I loved Rocky. One? Rocky was great, but... <laughs> When it came to the sequels, it was kind of like, well, I'm going to be watching a bunch of boxing movies, and I don't really like boxing movies. Uh, it's not a sports movie. Sports That's movie. one of the things still says. It's not movie. a sports movie, not despite a sports the fact movie. I said it just was. Even though it pretty much is. And oh. <laughs> I've, I've seen so many clips of this because, of course, you know, Rocky IV, there's an amazing fan-made poster which has basically got Dolph Lundgren as a mountain uh, <laughs> with his gloves up, which is one of my favorite fan-made right. posters I've seen for a long time. But I thought, yeah, I better see this in the original cut. And, whoa. <laughs> well, I warned you. I think it, it, I did, it was, it was like halfway through where I just sent a message to you guys saying, I've seen every montage in the world. And you guys went, no, you haven't. <laughs> it was still going. Yeah. The Yeah, the, the cut is, I, I don't actually mind the robot that Uncle Paulie was given, but if yeah. you could cut Paulie out of the movie, I would yes. fucking watch it again. Well, that's the thing is, there is a lot geez. less Paulie. It's this, this, it's he's any Paulie is lightly, too much Paulie. He's lightly peppered through the film, but there's it's a lot less because they, I mean the only real gag with that, that I remember is him falling in the snow when they yeah. get to Russia. And that's it. He's because the robot butler means yeah. that he is in it quite a lot. Yes, and if and if a character brings nothing to the movie and is a comic relief and is unfunny they need to go and the robot was comic relief but he wasn't as much as Paulie who 
by about the 50 minute mark, every time he said a line, I responded simply almost involuntarily with, shut the fuck up, Paulie, because he was starting to piss me off. The movie itself, I would classify as entertainingly stupid, because it is entertainingly dumb. It is, I think someone did the maths on it, 20, no, 31% montage. And the second half of it is 52% montage in the yeah. second half of the movie because it was two and a half hours long, the original cut, and they cut an hour out of it. So suddenly right. all these extended scenes of the boxing the boxing match at the end, apparently they shot for, mm. I think, two to weeks, 15-hour days at a time, yeah. and then it's it's now it's the first two rounds, the last round, and a montage of 12 more rounds in between mm. there. So there is training montages, there is newspaper montages, there is, I, I swear there'd be a montage montage. Then We went yeah. back and we were seeing scenes from Rocky, the original Rocky. Yeah. We saw Apollo Creed die, I think, 47 times during at least one montage. Just kept hitting their canvas. Yeah, that, the sad driving montage. The sad driving montage. So the way oh, they make the sad driving drive. montage different in the recut <laughs> is they turn the, the old scenes into black and white, but they keep the whole thing. But it, that is, that is bluish definitely, for me, the highlight of the movie. In inadvertent comedy alone because mm. I was fucking dying. I was <laughs> laughing my ass off. The saddest 80s power ballad driving and driving and that's when we started seeing scenes from something I'm going, that's Rocky 3, that's Rocky 2. I don't I haven't seen yeah. it. I re- We're back at Rocky. I thought we would see scenes from his childhood. I would <laughs> thought we would see the birth of Christ after a while but just <laughs> kept going further back and I freaking love that part. When it immediately finished they flew to Russia and began another montage was about the time I went, I don't know if I have the strength for these so the, uh, the sad driving montage, it, it, had Creed already carked it? Oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, because yeah. in that sad driving montage, he oh, died okay, like eight times. because the sad driving <laughs> yeah. montage and the director's cut is before he's... Oh, oh maybe there's an earlier... No, no, there's driving. no sad driving. There's a little bit of sad stuff at the... There's a sad thing at the start where he throws the helmet at the statue. That's but that's just part of the... So, like... Rocky versus Drago starts with like a nine-minute recap of Rocky three, right. which is Rocky losing the first fight, getting you know yeah. rescued by Creed and going back and That's getting about him two minutes long. Yeah. But it gives you yeah. an idea of the relationship, I think, because the relationship plays a lot bigger part in the recut than it does in in yeah, the version the, you saw. The emotional stuff he's on the theatrical barely, is he's barely in it. He's and he's there and he's dead. When there is some emotional scenes, yeah. It's underplayed to the point where, between Stallone's voice and how quietly everyone is talking, that the dialogue is literally... We put the subtitles on. I didn't put any subtitles on, and (laughs) by the time I got through the second time, where he's he's at the bottom of the stairs, and his wife's at the top of the stairs, and he's pouring his heart out, and I'm just like, pardon? What? What? And then he finished the scene, I'm like, I don't know what happened. And then he has the same scene with his son, and it's even less... Mm. Comprehensible, and I'm just like, just start punching something. Just go for a run. There's for a God's whole sake. lot more Talia Shire in the director's cut, for what it's worth. I, I, mean, she's I, good, thought, but I thought she was quite. I good. just, I just, it's, it's. I clearly not a, not a fan of what he saw. <laughs> no, and I guess um, I think a big problem in the film is, and one, of, I think one of the reviews I saw mentioned this is that there's this tension between the Rocky of Rocky One, who's just an everyman. And who, um, you know, fights to achieve his dreams, mm. and the Rocky of Rocky Four, who's expected to be somebody who can go toe to toe with somebody who's clearly like eight weight classes above oh, yeah. him, yeah. whose punching strength means that he should be able to decapitate um, Stallone with one blow, oh, yeah. 
And there's there's also just a lot about the boxing that doesn't ring true. I mean, all of Drago's training seems to be proving how hard he can punch and knocking down people who are standing in front of him. You know, and there's a lot of stuff about you know footwork and thing. You know, and yeah. that's a mm. that's the thing. He there's, runs in circles and punches. There, there's oh, no yeah. kind of. Um, and and I mean I I re- recently edited a boxing documentary and and but a lot of and a lot of the techniques that I saw that they learned in it aren't new ones you know they're like you watch films of people's fights you know that that happened um, back in the seventies and you watch how they fight and if you're fighting somebody who's killed somebody in a ring you would probably want to see like what is their weakness Do well they that's hang what that second? sad montage was about was seeing <laughs> everything that happened <laughs> that's everything happened in his entire life yeah. yes <laughs> but um so i have a, pro- a sort of a problem with that like side of it doesn't feel as plausible as i would like it to my bigger problem is when you come into the film um it's, and I think it would probably be even worse in the theatrical. You have no idea where Stallone is or Rocky is as a character. Mm. And, and most of the scenes, I don't know what he's playing. Like, I don't think Stallone is a bad actor. Um, and when he's doing, when he has a note to hit, he hits it very well. But I just think in those early scenes, he's just lost. And what some oh, of the things yeah, he talks maybe. about in the uh, making of is he didn't have anyone feeding back to him when he was doing it. So it's, it's, I think it's, un, it's, it's just maybe underwritten, undercooked, but also if he had a strong idea of where his character was, it doesn't really register. And I think it's only when Creed dies that he kind of, you kind of like, okay. And, and from that point forward, even if some of the implementation of it is silly, I'm with Stallone as an actor mm. and a character through the rest of it. But it just, it, it's really frustrating getting its, mooring you know mm, yeah. and and because he's not playing it like in the i've become rich and i love this life and i'm really enjoying it i'm not playing it in the i've lost my heart and this is all hollow he's but he's he playing does it in play ca- that in i was gonna say uh, he does play that in the first in the the version that skeet saw he, it, there's more of it because of the robot butler. There's right. more yeah. of that flashiness. There's so more of that. So maybe that is, I haven't it, seen he that definitely, you know, he's it supposed to, But he's still overshadowed by Carl Weathers because Carl Weathers' character is, as Apollo Creed is so big that yeah. for the first half he really does feel like a support player. And then when it gets to the second half, which is all montages, it's kind of his character development is so mm. rapid fire. I mean, it's, you know, one moment he's... He's driving in a sad driving montage. The next, he's in Siberia, literally running up a mountain to over, sort of do that running yeah, up the yeah. stairs, yep. running up the steps. But he's doing it on a literal mountain where he's going to and outrunning the KGB's car at one stage. Which, yep. yes, yes, yes. So there is, and it's it is a bit. You icy, go though. from kind of he's not really in the forefront. He's he's <laughs> it's a it's an Apollo Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like Stallone. And I love Stallone after watching that documentary. Oh, like wow. I will say that wow. it's a, it is like there's great stories. Um, there's stories that he has. He unloads on actors he's worked with because he's Stallone's a super prepared actor and he has no patience for people who show up not knowing their lines and he thinks it's. Bullshit, you know, and he's definitely like two takes, three takes, move on kind of guy. Um, and so he gets into a lot of the choices he makes about how he frames shots, about how, you know, a lot of a lot, acknowledging a lot of the mistakes. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that there's footage that he'd never seen before that was shot because the editing of it sounds like it was really rushed, but also like um, there's weird shit that's in the ADR in places that he's like, what's that? You know, 
What? <laughs> Somebody yells "Go Rocky!" at the start of the fight in um, Moscow. In Moscow, yeah. You know, and that's that, like what? The, what I mean, I, I was Rocky? I was definitely calling some serious bullshit on the end of it because by the end of it, he starts off when he's in Moscow in the height of the Cold War, yeah, and people yeah. are booing him out of the building. And by fifteen rounds, they're chanting "Rocky, oh, Rocky!" Yes, and the Michael Gorbachev, I like character, who is the same guy that plays Michael Mikhail Gorbachev in The Naked Gun, yes, is so doing this standing up slow clap, and I went, oh, "Fuck off." <laughs> <laughs> Fuck off! So far, you become a comet movie. This is not realism. But yeah. there, there was just some weird decisions. I mean, I mean, it's it's. I think one of the reasons in the eighties it got so huge is basically as someone one of the reviews I read of it was titled "Rocky Wins the Cold War," and it was yeah. it was a, a real flag waver. But the the thing that that, that really got me was that they try and show off the differences between the two fights: the Vegas fight with James Brown singing yes. and a million showgirls and showgirls and planes yes. flying over the top. And I'm just literally having 40 year later cringe, just going, this is, this would be embarrassing if, yeah. you know, the Russians would be looking at this on TV, just going, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. And then they try to go, Oh, well look, it's just all people in military uniforms, but then they're all cheering into it, cheering for Rocky. It's, it didn't ring true for me there. There's some, some odd decisions that will stick with me more than the fight. The decision where, they give Paulie his robot and a huge meal and a big cake, and then it's also their anniversary. So Rocky brings his wife a cake, a full-size fucking cake, shaped like a boxing ring, in bed as she's trying to go to sleep. And I'm like, who the fuck brings a cake to bed? Rocky, how many times were you punched in the head in Rocky 3? The club of lane just went, boom, I should buy a cake. Boom, I'm going to serve her in bed. Boom. It's because the bed is also a full life-size cake. <laughs> and a boxing ring at the same time. Is it a cake or a boxing ring? It's, it, as I say, it was. I found it entertainingly dumb. I, I don't know if I'd go back more... and watch it. My positives, though, I've got to give the positive. Dolph Lundgren's a fucking amazing by not doing anything. He just... Because apparently he looked at Rocky Three and he saw how vocal Mr. T was. Oh, my lord, yes. And went, well, in my character, I'm not going to do that. He's not going to talk. He's, he's got like six lines of dialogue. He's got the classic, I must break you. And his Russian accent, considering he's not Russian, is pretty good. Brigitte Nielsen is a lot more on the theatrical and, oh, my God, her Russian accent is, let's say, yet good. It's, <laughs> but she's never been praised for her acting skills I definitely, either. I mean, she, she's, which, not, she's was Swedish or something? Yeah. Uh, but, so. yeah, her, her accent in Russian is... Horrendous. Briefly or romantically linked to Flavor Flav in later days. But there you go. And unfortunately, because she speaks for Dolph Lundgren, she's got quite a lot of dialogue on the theatrical, and it's just becomes quite cringy once after a while. Romantically linked to Flavor Flav because she likes a big clock. Big clock, yay! (laughs) (laughs) But Dolph Lundgren, I mean, he's the part he plays, but he is so well suited for because, yes, he is a mountain of a dude in, in shape. And those montages definitely worked off, worked out well because when Stallone finally gets his shirt off in the final one, he's in phenomenal shape. He, those two apparently hit each other for real for for three weeks so hard that he told he said, I mean, "We're not going to fake this. We want this to look real," and nearly killed Stallone because Dolph Lundgren hit him so hard that it, his heart became inflamed and he had to be oh rushed off to hospital. Yeah. So yeah. Dolph Lundgren came this close to killing Sylvester Stallone in a boxing movie because Stallone wanted it to look real. Would look fucking real because, I mean, you you see what Dolph Lundgren looked like in 1987. He was a fucking mountain, and he probably could hit. I think a difference. The director's cut is perhaps a little bit more self-serious. It takes out some of the sillier moments. Yeah. Yeah. 
and it becomes a bit more yeah a, a bit more up himself a bit more sort of yeah i think i think my problem with making it more self-serious and i should pause and say i didn't mind watching it i kind of enjoyed some of the montages yeah. and i enjoyed some of the photography and i i, I didn't like I was not looking forward to watching it, and I found no, it watchable. You were dragging your feet a little. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, but I think the thing is that the the whole drama from the first match to the second match, none of those drama beats really are happening once you get to Russia. No, and so just true. structurally, you've got this big it's too chasm. Yeah, you know, and and just like it's just filling up space between. The two bouts and nothing's really mm. no, happening. There's, there's any no themes that are introduced in the first part that, no. that are answered in the second no. at all. That's yeah. true. It did um, apparently get a nomination for an award for worst soundtrack by the Golden Raspberry Awards. To which I can say the Golden Raspberry Awards can go fuck themselves because that's one of the best <laughs> '80s power ballad soundtracks. Oh, Divorce from the montage. It has got some beautiful '80s songs, which yes, have made my marathon disc. <laughs> On multiple occasions, mm, they sure have. And you know, I mean, you've got all the big, big hitting eighty names in there. So, the, well, the, know, not all of them because there Kimmy was Loggins is in there. Come on, you can't. <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, who's missing is Peter Cetera. Oh, no, whose film song "The Glory of Love" was meant to be the uh, ending credits, and it was rejected, and then later used in Karate Kid. Wow, <laughs> did not know that. Wow. So, yeah. Okay, so you, not the perfect soundtrack, but pretty damn. Good. <laughs> well, I, I have a lot of time for both versions. I I um, saw the four four for the first time as a Christmas movie about three, four years ago. And well, also, no, this is not in any way a Christmas movie other no. than it happens right. to take place on, on Christmas. Christmas Day. Which yeah. is, but it's well, entirely ignored, Christmas at least in Rocky vs. Drago. Yeah, it's ignored in the theatrical one as well. It's like, it's Christmas, and we're going to be having a Christmas day about, because it's in Russia, apparently. But at Russian least this is Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> so there's there's no Christmas trees there. No, there's just a right. giant fuck-off picture so of So the robot butler is just a birthday gift, is uh, He's it, a birthday gift, yeah. He's a birthday gift. Yeah, but there's not even, like... You know, here's a here's a present, Rocky. You know, here's a, yeah. You know, he flies off to there, and then Paulie makes his funny present. And is... His present for me should have been kicking Paulie in the nuts because as they go to the <laughs> Paulie says, "Hey, a lot of people think I'm annoying, and they would have kicked me to the curb." And I'm like, "Why didn't you? You would have made this movie a lot more enjoyable." I'm sorry, Bert Young, your character. Just Bert Young, uh, who oh. is a very good actor. He's a good actor, but and my he's done god, some great stuff. My god, the Paulie script for him is just trying bad. It's not good. Yeah, but yeah, it's. I I think it's. I think eventually you should have a look at the director's yeah. cut. Give it a year yeah. or so. As I say, I didn't. Maybe hate. next Christmas. I found it. You know, it's <laughs> it's one of those movies which you know I found joy in the in the silly bits, mm. and then some other bits. You know, you just kind of go, yeah, maybe I've seen enough mm. montages for the year. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? We've watched one film that we all agreed we really liked. Yep. Then we've seen a film that is sort of... Uh, it's okay. Yeah. And then then we go into a film that is perhaps one of the best films ever made. <laughs> it's, if, if, if anyone has anything bad to say about this film, then... They can fuck off. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's not going to be... I mean, this is a free space. Well, this is know. a safe Some space, might, but I don't want to We might be able to make some hear... criticisms, but I... I, I can't don't see want to hear any criticism. <laughs> I can't see it. Now, the film we are talking about is Night of the Hunter. It is just a phenomenal film. It, it's the one-time directorial effort of Charles Lawton, who is a great British actor, born on the 1st of July 
1899 and he passed on 15th of December 1962. First time I saw Charles Lawton in a film was probably Spartacus, or that I recognised, and he's devastating in Spartacus. He plays, he's very sort of witty and cutting and then he goes and commits suicide and it's sort of, um, yeah, it's really... An amazing performance and I, I just sort of fell in love with him ever since so for the past 20-30 years I've been a huge fan of Charles Lawton's acting he's can play villains he can play um, very sweet charming people and everything in between uh, he um, hooked up with his wife Elsa Lanchester also known as The Beard um, <laughs> in uh, 1928 and his first um, theat- his first acting experience was just in 1926 so she was with him through to his death even though he was a um, a homosexual he wasn't out because of course he would have been oh, that would have been, have been in jail no, and, and the uh, end of that career yeah absolutely yeah. but he's he just did a, a huge variety of performances at the big clock not talking about Bridget Nielsen's um, <laughs> preferences there, um, is a, a great um, uh, thriller film noir thing. Um, the, the Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, just uh, Jamaica Inn, uh, it's, and, and um, most famous, of course, for uh, uh, Quasimodo. Um, Hunchback and Notre Hunchback Dame. Hunchback and Notre yeah, that name rings a bell. Uh, Way. <laughs> wow. Oh, that was a lovely groan. It was worth it for that. And witness for the prosecution, which is one of my favourites. But it, just so many. He's just excellent in film noirs. There's a great one called The Suspect. There's, um, yeah, just tremendous. And he directed this masterwork of just one film. Apparently, he wasn't uh, particularly confident as a director. And was often told to uh, to speak up. It was often, it's. Um, but uh, let's. Yeah, apparently, he liked um, directing stage shows more because he could change things if Absolutely. they weren't working. I mean, as you said, when it's on film, it's there. You can't change it. Well, this is um, uh, interesting because on the Criterion Double Disc, mm-hmm. there's a whole. A documentary called "Filming," I think it's called "Filming Night of, or Directing Night of the Hunter," and it largely consists of camera reels. With um, because unlike you know normally you do you set up a shot, somebody does their line, I have seen you this. cut, yeah. and instead this is him rolling the camera, ha- having the actor do something, giving some direction, having them do it again, giving direction, and on and on. For like, you know, and he'd run a whole reel just to see, you know, so mm. that he could interactively work with the actor and see where it took them. So it was a very different way of working. And I bet the studio loved that because that's expensive. Absolutely. <laughs> and and well, preparing for the film, he was studying silent films, viewing their original nitrate prints. So Birth of Nation, Intolerance, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Mm. He, he said here he wanted to restore the power of silent films to talkies. And I, I think there's, I mean, some of those images. Those iris poles, for instance, yeah. are very... Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, obviously, yeah, there's heaps yeah. of uh, indelible images yeah. um, that were shot on those sound stages in Paris. And a lot of 
the things that we think are these huge spaces are barely uh, they barely exist like the chapel like space with it's the bedroom with a pyramid going up the top uh, where Robert Mitchum has his final scene uh, with his wife uh, that only exists as a backdrop there's no way that you could turn the camera even oh, wow. uh, inch either way and there would be anything so that's and there's so much of that in this film that it's just like kind of define exactly what you want um one thing on one of the documentaries on the Criterion disc mm-hmm. as well as Lawton talks about working with the writer uh, and <clears throat> all good uh, Lawton talks about working with the writer so I'll just check the time on that uh, 15-13 take three Lawton talks about working with the writer of the original novel, and one of the mm-hmm. things that the writer of the original novel did is sent him and James Agee, the, the, who adapted the script, these drawings. And some of these drawings um, went almost unchanged into the film. The oh, famous wow. shot underwater with the reeds going mm. by, that's a drawing from the author. And these images do have this very iconic quality of storybook the a lot of the framing represents that mm. um these very you know things that you would see in a kid's picture book because it yeah. is from a kid's point of view also there's a lot of things that if you look at it are kind of impossible like later when some of the kids go into town you'll see these neon signs clustered and stuff yes, but yes. they're not actually associated with any business there's it, just there. there's just the sense and, and it creates this real clustered sense of place without actually having to mm. create the whole place and yeah. with Lawton, he initially he wanted to be the lead. He wanted to play Harry, Reverend Harry Powell. He was uh, convinced eventually that um, they weren't just they weren't going to sell it on him. So they had to get someone else. They considered casting Gary Cooper, but Cooper did not accept the role as he thought it might be detrimental to his career. John Carradine expressed interest in the role, as did Lawrence Olivier. But his schedule was not free for uh, for two years. Now, uh, interestingly, Robert Mitchum, he was eager for the part of the preacher when he auditioned. Um, a moment that particularly impressed Charles Lawton was when Lawton described the character as a diabolical shit. And Mitchum promptly answered, present. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, I think we should... I mean, we can go on and on and on, but I think we should actually say what the damn story's about <laughs> and it's um uh, to to make it very quick uh it's basically a um a corrupt minister who's also a serial killer he's in prison he overhears uh from the sky that uh, where he has um left a whole bunch and um, hidden a whole bunch of stolen money or well, not where but yeah and back in and this is yes. sitting there we said what in the early 1900s just that it's yeah. with at his home he didn't doesn't ex- essentially say where but he does mention that his children are um, do know and um and so the um the evil uh, reverend then um goes tracks down uh, the family marries Shelley Winters who is it's uh, yeah it, Tremendous. It's a, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's it starts off once again as a very restrained Shelley Winters, and then mm-hmm. as she becomes a broken woman, once her her perfect world suddenly 
breaks. She breaks and she breaks. And he, and he's and so one of strong. acting students, incidentally. Right. Yeah. Really. Fantastic. That's how he found her. Wow! Did not know that. But yeah, and, and she is broken, and and she, uh, I mean, when she's about to be killed, she knows it. Mm. And she lets it happen, and it's devastating. Yeah, yeah. and when she gets religious fervor, and then the you know the, the what we think of as classic Shelley Winters comes out, mm. and you can see that, and it's fledgling Shelley Winters, but mm. yeah, you, the, just the the pure commitment she gives to I've got religious fever, mm. you know, which unfortunately I've seen plenty of YouTube videos and plenty of people on Twitter that get that these days, and it's it's a real thing. Because sometimes mm. when people go crazy, they go god crazy, and mm. you see it so regularly that seeing that on a movie shot back in the 1950s, just like wow, she's yeah. she's really she's nailed that that moment where you turned you've got nothing left and you just turn to religion, you know. So this preacher, he he kills Shelley Winters, um, and then he decides to track down the money which he's been trying to do. Um, and the kids run away, and he runs after the kids. And that's the story from there. Is, uh, if you haven't seen it, fucking hell, you should see this movie. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it, it just has all the emotions. And the fact is that um, Reverend Harry Powell is both the scariest thing in the movie and the most pathetic thing in the movie and mm. and sometimes the funniest thing in the movie yeah. and he really does believe he is talking to god it isn't a put on he is a mad serial killer bastard who believes that he is hearing the word of god and talks to god throughout the movie and and also, but also when he gets injured, that's out some of the most pathetic cries. Oh, exactly, which is what I film. mentioned by pathetic. The, 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 yes. when, the, when the children get away from him in the swamp, yeah. and he just, as you say, it's just a primal scream of yeah. you know why is this happening to me? Absolutely, and it's, it's, it's a. I mean, you quite often you know you get the movies which show the the, the movie psychopath and. And they're, they're always a, you know, you look at it and go, well, that's just acting. But this is, it's for me, it's a portrayal of what you would expect a true psychopath to have because he mm. swings wildly. It's all about himself, but he swings wildly between mm. that most charming guy that charms the pants off everybody. And the, the town busybody, for instance, who is just, just thinks he's God's chosen man dropped mm. amongst them. And then, but and on a dime in the next scene, he swings back to the, where he is just the most menacing Absolutely. person. Absolutely. And then they've got seen. the it's there's a lot of small town satire and there's the the woman who um, runs the um, the local store and yeah. taffy shop is just again a, a, as uh, Skeets was saying swings on a dime you've got her being all all supportive and oh isn't he a nice mm, reverend yes. <laughs> and um, and then the moment she's aware that he is not a nice reverend. She doesn't. Uh, she just doesn't want him put away. She wants him strung up strung and hung. Up. She's and she, leading them No all. Christian kindness no. whatsoever. No, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, sonny comes out. But it's, it's just yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating how they they show that little town as as just this yeah horribly happy and nice. And then horribly horrible. Blue Velvet, nineteen fifty-one. And then you've got Lillian Gish, who we haven't even touched on, who is just speaking of the silent movie era. Yep. Yes, who's back. just, um, she's amazingly strong. She's not just sweet and saccharine. She has a, 
It's not even particularly nice. No, no. no a tremendous strength, though. Strong, very strong mm-hmm. character. And yeah. again, I really haven't. The, the rest of the story, once the kids escape, is their journey. And that's where a lot of the wonderful images come from. And that's um, I, at, at the risk of not surviving this podcast. I will say that on this viewing, <laughs> yeah. um, I kind of mentioned before how some films have their the, the image that endures in your head of what the yes. film is, and then you're confronted with the reality of it. I remembered this film as being two kids uh, run away from... Robert Mitchum's preacher character who's pursuing them to try to get this money and have this, uh, you know, quest down the river. Mm. But that doesn't start till well over halfway into the film. And I think, I do think that the majority of the indelible images and evocative moments are in that back half. Uh, And I do think there's a lot of plotting and stuff in the first half that probably could have been simplified. Um, and I, there's one plot point in particular, which is where the drunk old guy who discovers mm. Shelley Winter's body is like, oh, but they'll think I did. It's a very strange, mm. like kind of moment. Cause I don't buy it. And then by the time they do catch up with him, they know he's, they, they've somehow identified there. There's something a little, mechanical there that was just ever so slightly frustrating as you seen as you brought that up i mean that's one of the things i liked and and really could see more this time around than in in other viewings and that might be the fifth or sixth time i've seen it um is that a lot of it is about adults letting children down Mm -hmm. it's the the father lets the kids down by being uh, dragged away to jail. Mm-hmm. The mother lets the kids down because the kids very clearly have a view as to what they think of the reverend. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the mother cannot see it and will not see will it. Will not see it, no. It's the, um, the owner of the general store lets the kids down because she, um, if she only sees Christian kindness or what she believes is Christian kindness. Laid on with yeah. charm and smarm. Yep. Exactly. exactly. And then the the old-timer guy who you just mentioned lets the kids down because he's the only one that the uh, the boy can really communicate with and who who's there for him. And then when they really need him, he yeah. is a, a pathetic alcoholic, alcoholic on the floor. Yeah. Who can't, can't do a damn do a thing. thing? And for then Lillian Gish's character comes in, who, and, was, who, who doesn't, will never who is not them, who the was, most kindest of oh, people. No, definitely not. But oh. she will not let them down. And it's I I mm. I saw it with about four or five other friends, and we were just so swept up in it. It was mm. just I it, it laid more of an emotion, emotional blow this time round than it has for a past couple. Maybe because I was seeing it with others. Maybe because it, yeah, it was just. But some of the imagery. I mean, you know, the, yeah. when you, especially when you, he's doing things almost in silhouette, as you say, like a storybook, like with cutout yeah, pictures yeah. that, you know, you see in a, in a in a children's book from the fifties or forties or fifties, where there's, mm. like, for instance, where the preacher's on his horse on the background, which apparently was actually shot with a dwarf on a pony to, wow. because on the set yeah. to get because otherwise there was no way he could have done that to make. Mm. And it just sticks out. It, it looks like if you freeze ran that, it looks like it's it's been printed out off a book. 
Yeah, I mean, Stanley Cortez, who is the director of photography, had as shot the Magnificent Ambersons and has a pretty storied career. And the collaboration that they had in working out how to get these images made, how to create a bloody river and, and have a river trek mm. in a Paris sound studio, yeah. you know, and just like those indelible images of, you know, the the truck underwater or the house on the hill and or the horseman on the hill, all these things to create this journey. And I suspect that the difficulties in creating that is maybe why it doesn't have as much of that journey as yeah. it might otherwise mm. could because... You know, creating a river and yeah. that extends you know, a mile on the soundstage. Like, yeah. It was like thigh high, so he was having to duck down into that to make it look like it was up to right, his chest. Right, right, yeah, because it does, it does seem like it has a pretty sudden drop-off. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's in there, Woof, wow, there we go, up to the yeah. neck. But, uh, <laughs> One of the things that really got me was the um, at the beginning of the film where the police come to take his, um, the father away. The, the little kid, the boy, is saying, no, don't, no, don't. And it's really sad and pathetic, but it's, mm-hmm. it really tugs at the heart. And then, in spite of everything that Reverend Harry Powell has done mm-hmm. to these two kids and has threatened to kill them, and so much, when the, um, when the police come to take Reverend Harry Powell away... He does exactly, exactly the, the same. same. Well, thing. I took that as a flashback PTSD. Yeah, that's exactly that's, what I was. And that's, yeah, I mean, and I hadn't going to say it before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yes, I agree. Yeah, very much. And well, that's very insightful of you. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. We're getting on together on the today, and it's, it's a Christmas miracle. And, <laughs> and this is a Christmas movie because Christmas comes in a night time that yes, six minutes before the end of the movie. Oh, we planned it. Well I went, done. Because I was looking at it going, Where are we sure this is Christmas? a Christmas movie? I know Darren showed this on one of his Christmas no, movies. No, no, I did. Doug, oh, did. Doug showed on one of his Christmas one of our Christmas movie ones. And I'm thinking, I must have dropped off a little bit because I don't remember. No, six minutes out, the Christmas tree goes up. And but it, it finishes, really and stays. It is a six, and it is like a little Christmas yeah. bit for that last six minutes. So Yeah, it so ends on Christmas. Yeah. And it does have that, um, to get back to a theme we talked about much earlier, the impromptu family yep. that comes together. And, um, mm. and so it does land that kind of Christmas movie in a very... Mm. Yeah, at Christmas, so whoever's in your house at that stage is the family, you know. Even yeah. if they're not. Yeah. You know, even if it's like Lillingish with her, her pastel of orphans that she's looking after. Yeah, oh, and um, when they when the kids arrive on the, it's, um, on the farmland before they meet Lily and Gish, there's a whole bunch of... Um, there's a mother duck and a bunch of ducklings behind, and then when, uh, when they've been encapsulated, encapsulated into the brood... You see Lillian Gish walking downtown with her whole bunch of ducklings. A little bunch of ducklings, yep. Behind her. There's, I mean, there's so much. We could talk for hours about the imagery in yeah, this yeah. film. It's the text and the subtext because it's, it's so deep. But what we're saying is it's, it's a pretty much a must-watch. And not mm. even at Christmas, just yeah, it's a must-watch. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sure the first time I, I never saw it as a Christmas film before yeah. well, until Doug played it, which what, about yeah. 10 years ago or so. Yeah. But yes. before Elves, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a double feature for you. <laughs> All right. It's a great, great movie. You should see it. Well, 
This will certainly be our last recording of 2022. Exactly, because so, it's going to take until New Year's just to um, edit this thing and get it together. <laughs> edit, to, edit it down to four and a half hours. Exactly. Happy New Year, listener. Exactly. And, and we will we'll see, see you next time. 2023. Take see care. See you then. Bye.